Hi, everybody. Stefan Molyneux from Freedom Made Radio. Hope you're doing well. What a fun show we had tonight. The first caller wanted to know, how can we trust intuition? Is intuition a valid way of figuring things out about the world? I think my answer may surprise you. I have a lot of respect for intuition, but it's something that we need to closely monitor and evaluate. The second caller, yeah, his heart was pretty much broken throughout the entire conversation. But before we even chatted, he worked for a year in a refugee home for in Sweden for, of course, the Middle East migrants. And the stories he had to tell were depressing, hair-raising, scary, and essential to hear. So I hope you will listen to that with great, great clarity and depth. Now, the next caller was a woman who wanted to know whether acknowledging group differences between people, is that divisive or helpful? Is it going to solve problems or is it going to cause more problems? And that's a very common question that I get. So I was really glad to delve deep into that. And the last caller, she's called in before. Uh, she's a great caller. And she wanted to know, is it really pathological altruism that may be the cause of some problems, a lot of huge problems that the West is facing? Or is it in fact just basic narcissism? And we had a good chat about that. So thanks everyone so much for listening and for watching, of course. Please help us the show at freedomainradio.com slash donate. All right, up first today, we have Lynn. Lynn wrote in and said, Intuition seems to describe a legitimate problem-solving technique. I've often arrived at insight without following a serial path of logic. In science and math, I can usually show someone else a logical path, but I did not arrive there consciously. I believe Newton intuitively, quote-unquote, knew how gravity worked, but he had to invent the mathematics of calculus to prove what he knew viscerally. In the computer world, serial logic prevails. In the human meat brain, great term by the way, parallel processing prevails. I believe that intuition is a result of this unconscious parallel processing of data in our brains. So my question is, what is intuition? Can intuition be the reason behind my quote-unquote non-reasonable faith in a creator? Although my faith in Jesus does not meet the standards of serial imperial logic, I have a strong gut feeling that there is much spiritual truth about human nature and the nature of the Creator in the Christian faith. I believe that my intuition is not blind, even though I lack empirical proof. That's from Lynn. Hey, Lynn, how you doing? I'm doing just fine. Good to talk to you. Your question reminds me of an old song. Um, Imagination is funny. It makes a cloudy day sunny. Makes a bee think of honey, just like I think of you. And I think this question, the relationship between instinct and reason is <clears throat> is a fascinating one. Is there anything you wanted to add to your question before we dive in? Well, I, I had a quote in mind from Einstein that thinks that intuition is an important part of how he arrived at his thinking or his uh, conclusions. Right. I mean, so one of the most common ones is we all know that, you know, rape, theft, murder, assault, that these are all wrong. But proving it, uh, as I have done with my free book at freedomainradio.com slash free, a free <laughs> entitled Universally Preferable Behavior, A Rational Proof of Secular Ethics, it's one thing to know something intuitively, it's another thing to prove it. And I was interested, Lynn, in the fact that you would talk about Newton or, or Einstein, that these people had an intuition about the way that the universe worked or the way that physics worked. And they then went through the trouble of figuring out how to prove it. And that, I think, is the important thing. The 
intuitions that we have, I mean, as we know, our brains have evolved from, I don't know, the nervous system of single-celled organisms over billions of years. And we have instincts left over, of course, from our time as, I guess, relatives of chimpanzees and earlier than that. And we've kind of built this, what I call the post monkey beta brain expansion pack, which is kind of buggy, on top of all of this existing infrastructure of uh, instinct and and all of that. It's sort of like how they built, they always built cities on top of other cities in the ancient world. And so I think that intuition is really important. And I do think that we're told to ignore our intuition a lot of times by people who want to prey on us, by people who want to fool us, by people who want to steal from us. We're, we're told to ignore our own intuition. Uh, people who are dangerous always want to tell us to ignore our own intuition. Uh, and so people who present the signs or, or present themselves in, in dangerous ways will always say to you, well, don't prejudge me by the way I look, right? And, and so they're trying to disarm your natural instincts about potential danger. And so I think that Intuition and instinct is a very, very essential and important part of life. Its relationship to the neofrontal cortex, the sort of more rational part of the brain, I think is sort of like a dance. It's like a negotiation. We should not be dominated by instincts, but neither at the same time should we dominate our instincts and ignore or crush or repress them because we have the singular ability to reason our way out of emotional associations that aren't correct. Like I was thinking about this call during the day. And I remembered when I was, when we first moved to Canada, I lived with a relative and this relative had a dog and he asked me to go and rake the yard. And I said, sure. And I went to rake the yard and the dog ran away and hid howling. And he said, well, we got this dog from a previous owner. The previous owner hit the dog with a rake. And of course the dog was scared of the rake. Now, if it was a human being, you could say to the human being, that you're not scared of the rake, you were scared of the owner, the owner using the rake. Now that we have a different owner, the rake is not nearly as dangerous. In fact, it's not dangerous at all. And so you can't really do that with dogs, I don't think, but you can do that with, with people. So I think that instincts are very important, but we should not accept them as gospel, almost literally, I guess, is the case of what you're calling in about. We should not accept them as gospel, we should not deny them, and they should always be subject to uh, rational, the requirements of rational proof, if that makes sense. Well, in a lot of situations, like climate, things are so complex that there is really no serial way to prove what the weather in, whether it's going to rain on this block in Yuma. You know, it may or may not, they'll give you a, a, a percentage of uh, possibilities, but there's no way that they can actually say it's going to happen. It's just too, you know, too complex, too many variables over. Right. Is there more you wanted to add to that? Well, only only that in in some situations like that, instinct is probably about, well, I, I make a distinction between instinct and, and uh, intuition. But your your um, intuition is probably the only thing that you, you have going for you. And what is your distinction between intuition and instinct? Well, I haven't quite figured that out. You take, uh, in the, like birds have particular uh, uh, nest building habits or mating habits that don't seem to be logically or they're not transmitted from parent bird to the uh, fledglings. Uh, they apparently are kind of like built into their brain. And that's really pretty hard to explain from 
uh, a DNA point of view? How does how does behavior get involved in the or uh, determined by uh, DNA? Yeah, it is it is a real challenge, and of course the. Um there, if, if I this is off the top of my head, but if I remember rightly, there are monarch butterflies or certain species of butterflies that make a trek down to Mexico or someplace when North American winters start to hit, and sometimes it can take them several generations to get down there. Again, I could be wrong on that, but even if it's just one, they just kind of float around in North America, and then boom, off they go <laughs> to Mexico where they stay for the winter. And that is, of course, confusing because that is um, behavior that is very instinctual. So um, that, I think, is uh, important, that these instincts are essential. We, we wouldn't have the capacity for a higher brain if our instincts hadn't worked to keep us alive and keep us out of the jaws of saber-toothed tigers and all that. And so I would say that um, we need to have respect for the instincts. They should not be our masters. Uh, they should not be our slaves, but they should work to, to stimulate thought. They should be in a dance with reason, but reason does at some point have to have the final say. If we're going to say something true, about the universe or the world. Instincts aren't going to be enough to do that because they are subjective experiences. Again, it doesn't mean that they're false, but they don't rise to the status of uh, epistemological truth unless they're verified by reason and evidence. Uh, I would agree with that. All right. So with regards to a belief in, in Jesus or a God, it is a subjective experience. You do, of course, have the challenge if you wish to make it a metaphysical claim, a claim about something in reality that you have to go through the process of reason and evidence in order to support the instinct or the feeling of existence of a deity. And that is, um, uh, that is the big challenge, of course, that theologians and philosophers have wrestled with for thousands and thousands of years. So I think that um, these kinds of instincts, again, very important, but you can't uh, let them determine truth or falsehood. They are compelling and powerful subjective experiences, but they do not rise to the level of philosophy until validated. Well, I, I can't argue with that either. All right. Well, um, I think then we will move on with, uh, if we have good agreement, uh, I think that's uh, wonderful. I appreciate your call in. Uh, Lynn, a, a great pleasure to chat with you, and uh, let's move on to the next caller. Okay. All right. Well, up next is Dave. Dave wrote in and said, I've worked for one year at a care home for unaccompanied minors in Sweden. How do I prepare my family for growing up in this environment? And how can I help provide answers to helping these kids when they themselves identify these refugee homes as negative and hate their situation? I see multiculturalism failing around Europe and the United States, but these problems have been around so long. Shouldn't there be a way for each culture to find their own way in each society? It seems people are waking up to these false narratives. What else can we do to reverse the damage of the past 40-plus years of multiculturalism? That's from Dave. Well, hey, Dave. How you doing? Uh, great stuff. Uh, how are you doing? How are you doing? Uh, not too bad. Thank you. Uh, not too badly. Um, so what the, the care home for unaccompanied minors, I assume that this is... Um, Middle East migrants uh, and the minors are coming in and saying that they are 18 or 17 or below, that they're yeah. 17 or below. Is that is that children? I've heard some right. stories that this may not be entirely accurate um, if you look at some of the, uh, uh, quote, minors. But um, what was your experience working there for a year? What, uh, what sort of stuff did you see? What did you experience? What are your thoughts? That's quite an um, – that's kind of a, an inside view of, of the situation. Yeah, well um – yeah, it was about a, about a year. We um, 
I got recommended by a colleague to uh, start up at one of these homes because there are so many that were coming in because they've just been expanding a lot of uh, uh, old daycare facilities or new uh, new buildings they put in or uh, or in some cases they actually took out like uh, areas like hotels or something where they fitted them with uh, the refugee kids and like you said they say they're like 15 or 16 ish but they're all um, yeah mostly from Afghanistan and uh, Somalia and they're all military age males of course um, you, you can't really tell how old they are to be honest and uh, a lot of them you know they say they've been on the streets for you know five six years and going through a lot of different countries so it's like well how are you able to do all that and still be only 15 or 16 and a lot of them uh just in my experience they were really aggressive um if they didn't get anything uh like let's say they wanted to load their cell phone with some minutes and they only had a certain amount per month that they got well if they used up all those minutes and you said, well, you already used how much you have for the month and it's only like two weeks in, then they could throw some pretty violent tantrums. Uh, sometimes they just throw food all over the kitchen and make it start stinking. Or in this case, um, what made me want to talk about this was uh, I just realized people were asking me like, what's actually going on in these homes. Then I actually, hear anything from media about what's going on so they're always curious to say well what is it exactly that these kids are experiencing and why are they so violent it seems and why do all the Swedes try to burn the the homes down whenever they're announced uh, that they're building new ones so it's it's quite uh fascinating because it feels like you're right there and you got people that are, might be trying to burn down the building on the outside, but then when these kids throw these these violent tantrums, uh, it's like they want to burn it down themselves. So it's like both sides are kind of trying to do the same thing. And it's really hard to really get a grasp of what these kids want because it's, it's like they come over and they usually, some of them uh, sponsor their families to come over and like the father will get arrested or the their siblings will come in with the mother and it's only the father that gets arrested. So it, it doesn't really make sense why they would just bring in these military age males and then start arresting the fathers that come in as well. Um, I'm sorry, I don't quite understand. So, so the, the military age men that you're talking about would try and sponsor their own fathers to come in and then the fathers would come in, but the fathers would be arrested? Right. They'd come in with their, they'd fly in with their whole family um, to sponsor their family to come in. And for some reason, the Swedish authorities would say like it wasn't allowed for them to come in, but they would only arrest the father and the mother and the children would be like allowed to, to stay at, you know, some temporary facility while they uh, sent these uh, sons to, to go live with their parents again so it, it's I don't, I don't really know how the system works why they set it up that way it's like i said they don't really talk too much about what why they uh, what they actually do in these homes so 
to right. Yeah, just, on, sorry. Right, sorry. Um, so when when they're in these these homes, uh, it seems like uh, they don't really get along with themselves either. Um, some of them say like they just want to get away from whatever problems they were trying to escape from in their country. But when they come to these homes and they're integrated with a lot of kids, um, they end up causing the kid, other kids to strike out and, and lash out and they start fighting each other. Um, one time there was, they, they liked soccer. Uh, so they were all playing one, one day at a big field that they had built for them. And because some of the kids were Arabs, the others were uh, Af- from Afghanistan, they, a whole bunch of them just started uh, swarming around each other and started uh, getting in a pretty nasty fight. And it was pretty, pretty scary to see. And they just said to me that, you know, we don't like Arabs. And then you could see how even among themselves, they're like in kind of a, explosive situation where they they don't want to be around uh certain other cultures and that to me was kind of i I didn't really know about that and hadn't seen it from that side either but um you know being around them for a year uh you, you get to see how they lived and usually they would just kind of hold themselves up in their rooms at times and they'd want to move out of the home and the way they do that is they have to apply through some pretty lengthy process. And then eventually they get their own apartment, which, you know, is paid for by the government. And it's, it's kind of sad really because they, they want to move out and they want to get on their own. But then when they don't, they start shutting down. They don't really have too many friends outside of the home that they're in. And so then they start, like I said, throwing those tantrums and it could be uh, something pretty minor, but it could be like a split second. uh, You know, they just flip out because, you know, they didn't have their bus card or something and they wanted a ride somewhere and we couldn't take them because it was too late because at these facilities, you know, you only have so many people that work at night and these kids, they want to go out and, and party and, you know, we can't leave one person in in the facility because if you do at night, it's it's pretty dangerous uh, for those people because you always have to make sure you count how many knives are left at the end of the night. And, you know, sometimes... You mean after, after dinner kind of thing? Yeah, after dinner. Um, before the night personnel uh, stay over, you have to make sure that all the scissors are accounted for, the knives and um, in fact, there was a 21-year-old in Gothenburg back earlier this year. Um, she was staying at a, at a similar facility as mine, and this is why it kind of made me want to talk about it since she was there and they had a knife missing. They didn't know where it went, and she was there alone at night. Uh, and it's it, in our case, we were lucky because, you know, if, if a scissors were missing or something, then you had to have two people there. Like you weren't allowed to have one person stay there at night because you never knew what, what could happen. And in her case, you know, she tried to break up a fight. Like I think maybe an hour, half hour before the day shift came in 
And uh, yeah, it was just brutal shit. They cut her all up because uh, she was trying to get in between two guys. Two guys, and uh, I think they found out that the one that uh, murdered her was twenty plus year old uh, kid from Somalia. And just really scary to think. Um, I know when I first started working nights, uh, yeah, I didn't go outside the room at all for anything. So just and know any of the kids and trust any of them. Sorry, do you mean the room where you were stationed? Yeah, we we had a room where the personnel would sleep at night. So if anything were to happen, we were there in that room to lock lock ourselves in in case we needed to get away from one of them. It was kind of the office for all the, the workers. Uh, so, I, and this is from dangerandplay.com, Mike Cernovich's blog. He said, Sweden caught censoring the internet 1984 style from January 29th, 2016. He said, if you live in Sweden, you won't be able to read this news report. Exclusive Swedish social worker was stabbed in the back and thigh. She tried to break up a fight between two teenage migrants. Uh, yes. Sweden appears to be censoring all articles critical of refugees. Three more articles are unavailable in Sweden. Yeah, they passed a law back in... April 2014 that made it basically uh, defamation or hate speech or whatever so that you weren't actually allowed to talk about these things. Otherwise, you could be charged by a prosecutor. And so that's shut down a lot of people even opening up about this. Um, I know when I try to talk about it, I seen uh what's her name ingrid kalkvist on your show a couple times and she talks about a lot of issues and people have warned me that she's a islamophobe and not to not to listen to her and that she's dangerous and i'm like well did you actually listen to anything she had to say about what it was like growing up in sweden back in the 70s and how a woman should just be able to walk down the street naked without having to worry about being assaulted and you know it's it's just 40 years later, you see how much things have changed, and now they're just massively importing all these these migrants, and it's it's just so alarming how many there are, and then when they're around each other, how they kind of also create even more hostility because they're not all from the same area, so it's like, well, do you even know what kind of situation you're creating, and um, couple of years back there was just even now there's there's cars that i think there's like six days or seven days in a row where cars are just lit on fire in the middle of the night and people say that it's swedes that are burning the cars but it's not it's it's in these areas where it's like the worst ghettos of sweden where they're not even allowed to have their own law enforcement there they have uh, a separate law enforcement that's that's working in there. So, sorry, get it. Uh, no, you were about to say something else. Um, well, the way the way it works when we're, when we're working with these kids is, um, you know, we're there to to take care of them, and if, like I said, if they need their their phone charged or if they need food for or hygiene products, whatever, we're there to to give them basically everything that they need, but um, like I said, they can lock themselves in the rooms. So if they need to go to school and we knock on the door and wake them up in the mornings, um, 
they'll just basically be shut off and they won't want to go. So we can't actually force them to go to school. And um, if they if they stay up all night and then they play like uh, Xbox or they have their they all get their MacBook Pros and our Apple Airs and are able to basically shut themselves off from. I'm sorry, D- uh, Dave. How did they get their MacBook Pros? Uh, well, through the school system, they loan that out. So each student gets one of these MacBook Airs to, uh, yeah, to study with, and then they're able to do whatever with them when they take them home. Um, usually, they have, to, they have to sign it out, I think, but uh, I'm not real familiar with that. But um, but we would take them out on the weekends, and we would, you know, play uh, football with them or whatever, uh, see a movie or do activities together. And, you know, sometimes they would be like, well, this other, this other, uh, house, this other home for kids, they got to go here for this weekend and we don't do any of these things. So they would start like raising, um, we have weekly meetings with them and, or I'm sorry, monthly meetings. And so they would every month complain like the food isn't good enough or they don't have enough activities like these other places. But then when we set up these activities for them in response to that, none of them want to go. So it's like, they're just basically trolling. And it's, <laughs> and when they say that the, the food is so bad, it's like, well, you said you grew up on the streets and all this other uh, stuff. So how can that be, like something that's an issue where you're complaining about it because it, if you really grew up on the streets, you'd be thankful for any type of food you got. And honestly, the kids, they, they ate better than I did. So <laughs> I watched that they say three hots and a cot. Yeah. And do these, uh, do these, um, youngish people, do they, um, are they learning Swedish? Are they learning English? Do they seem to have any job skills that might be of value in the Swedish economy? Well, the thing that I see them right now uh, is they, they learn Swedish. Uh, it's it's very tough for them. Not all of them can learn it. Uh, some of them don't speak any English, and uh, some of them, yeah, it, it's. It, I would say a majority of them don't know how to how to speak Swedish very well. Uh, it's very basic. If 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 at all, because like I said, you try talking to them and you don't know their language, so you need a translator. But if you try talking to them in Swedish, they often just get very angry because they just don't understand what you're saying to them and they can't uh, understand you either. So I would, as economically, their, their best bet is probably to go into the government and working as a translator, but if they can't even learn Swedish, it's like, how do they even, uh, make that shift? And, um, is it that they're not particularly interested in learning Swedish because, you know, they've, they, they've got time, right? They don't have jobs. And as you say, they can be in school, but I assume some of the schooling is to learn Swedish, right? Right. That's, that's what they have special classes that they are set up with to learn Swedish because they have to learn a basic form and, and start off 
on different levels because they don't know how much they they know whether they know the alphabet or what um what languages they can speak so it, it kind of starts off with your basic swedish and um some of them pick it up real fast like i said like they're real motivated and and they can do it really well others it's um it's just a struggle you can tell they just it's very basic form of Swedish that they can speak. So economically, um, you know, I noticed a lot of, um, I don't know what you call it. It's like, it's little like grill houses on grills, grills on the street, I guess, where, you know, they, they work at and they can work at a couple of uh, mini marts that they have open in downtown area, but it's, it's pretty small. It's, it's, not not too many of them that that can work in there because they've had offers. We've we've been to places like pizza joints and stuff, and they're like, "Oh, you guys want to come work here? You know, just come apply here for the summer and you know see see how it goes goes down." But when the summer came around, you know they they had no interest in it. So it's like, well, I mean, if they're, they're getting an income from the government, right? And I assume that that income would be diminished if they got wages. So they basically be working for little to nothing right i mean tell me if i'm wrong that's i mean how i've seen it in other places um i'm not i'm not sure if they would dock them anything i know that they do get paid uh they they have somebody who takes care of their finances for them uh and this person tells them how much money they have saved up and if like they have money to go and buy certain things i know it must be a good amount of money because some of them buy some some pretty nice things uh and those things break, and then they go out and buy more. So, what kind of stuff are we talking about here? Like a uh, drone, that type of thing, where they go out and yeah, fly these little drones around, and you know, like uh, football gear and a lot of other things they they take an interest in. Right, drones. Drones, yeah. I, you know, so many things rolling around in my head. I, I'm just not even going to bother picking one about that particular phrase. And I'm still working on the MacBook Airs, which are some pretty nice and slick machines. And of course, they've got, I assume they've got free, virtually unlimited internet access. Right. Yeah. It's through the, through the house that we work at. So they have all that. Because that, that, of course, would allow them to browse websites in their native language, which would give them less of an incentive to exactly learn Swedish, right? Well, they, that's what they do is they'll sit there and they'll be listening to whatever music they it's from their country or whatever TV shows are from their country and it's in their language. And we have giant, you know, TV room where they can do that sort of thing and, and watch their, their movies and uh, their language. And yeah, it's pretty much like you said, where they're not learning Swedish, they're just holding on to their language through through those devices. Right. From from what you've seen, is there, I mean, is there, there's, you, you mentioned earlier, there's sort of a lot of conflict between various groups coming in, right? I mean, it's not just, you know, one big group uh, that all gets along. Well, they had to split up the groups because it got so bad where they they couldn't have the kids from from different cultures together so they split it up in a couple days because 
they said there was, there was a lot of kids, uh, maybe like 80 or so. And it, when they, when they got into that argument, it, it just took off. And then some of these uh, Swedish ladies were breaking it up. And I was, I was so scared for them because I just saw this massive, like amount of, like I said, they're, they're not really kids. And I'm just hoping like they're going to be okay and that nothing happens because it's, they just get so like, like lightning, they just get so angry and so violent. And it's like, you're all automatically like on alert, like what's going to happen. You, who knows? One of them could have a weapon or whatever. Um, so it's really hostile um, in like an instant. And, and it's weird because it's like when there there's more of them together, it's worse. So that's why I was kind of thinking how does, like if you're in another population and you're moving to be together with people of similar cultures, wouldn't, wouldn't it be able to, help you assimilate if you have more people from that same culture who can maybe be there for, for you to, to talk with. But in this case, it's like, it makes it worse. It's like you, you have people from your, not all from your home country, but from other countries. And sometimes it just, it just makes it worse. It, it doesn't make sense. Uh, they, they seem to be unaware of the fact that diversity is a strength and that they should be enjoying and appreciating the differences between them rather than using it as excuses to get involved in some pretty significant conflicts. Sure. Yeah, definitely. Cause I, I know, Oh, a couple of them. Um, yeah, they, they pull me aside and, and they're just like, look, don't, don't ever talk to these people and don't ever, um, give these people a ride. And, I'm just like, why? I just, I just didn't understand. Like, what is it that that's so bad about them? And they're just like, oh, they're, they're Arabs. We don't like Arabs. I'm like, okay. I mean, cause they're in the same house as them in the same community. So it's, it's, it's weird because from the inside, you know, you think that wouldn't really matter. But like you said, you know, they don't realize that diversity is supposed to be their strength, etc. And, of course, they must be frustrated as young men without, I assume, women around to, to date or to, well, I guess, I don't know. That, that brings up a good point because, actually, one of the places I was at, um, some of the female uh, personnel were, were saying how worried they were um, that they saw some really young like 12, 13 year old Swedish girls were walking around um, with these guys and they look so much older and they were saying how worried and scared they were to see these kids, quote unquote kids walking around with these really young girls and, and just how, uh, yeah, that, that was even like alarming them. So I'm sorry to cut you off. No, no, that's fine. Uh, but sorry, go ahead. Yeah, so so you have situations where yeah the the women you know they want to be like inviting like I know Ingrid made the comment it's like you're bringing in these military boys and you just want to like like the mother just want to hold them and hug them and and bring them in and then the girls you know want to 
also invite them in, but it, it's just scary to think of if there's so many of them, what, but because like Ingrid said, you know, gang rape wasn't even a, a term used in Sweden back in the day. And now it's like, it's part of the vocabulary and they say that these kids are Swedes, but they're not, they're, they're from another country and to just sit there and, and put more uh, smoke and mirrors over it and just hiding this, this information. I think it's, it's causing a lot of Swedes to, they're, they're, like you were saying, the great lie of multiculturalism is not only does it decrease your trust with those people who come in, but your own culture. And a lot of them, a lot of the Swedes are worried about other Swedes and how those people are going to be reacting and how they're going to be uh, trying to take back, you know, fight back for their, their country. And, so it's it's like we're more scared of, of that reaction too. So you got you know, both sides that are really uh, uh, I don't know. It's just it's explosive. You, you don't know what what's going to happen. Yeah. So if if you have some concerns about this giant social experiment going on, that you're con- you may be afraid of what uh, other native Swedes might have to say about it. Right. And, and if you try talking about it and, you know, try giving light to the issue, it's like you're a racist, you're automatically shot it down. How could you, how dare you say this? These people are all, you know, trying to escape from war. But like Lauren Southern was pointing out, she was there, boots on the ground. And she said, I couldn't find any Syrians. She's like, there were two kids in some one of the camps she went in and that's where all the media was focused was these two or three syrian kids out of like all the others that were that were there and it's like yeah these these people aren't all coming from war-torn countries and like i said a lot of them came through turkey and greece and a lot of other places and it's like if you really just wanted to escape the war you'd want to you know move there and not just shop around and and go for for the who's got the best welfare right right and um as far as i don't know it's hard to say this is a very sort of abstract or emotional term but i guess one one of the things i'm curious about is the level of um appreciation that may or may not be occurring uh among the people who are, you know, according to the sort of general narrative, are rescued from war-torn zones and so on. Is there a sense of, like, gratitude or a sense of relief or a sense of how can I help or, you know, thank you guys so much or anything like that? Uh, absolutely not. Um, <laughs> Take it, your time. <laughs> it, comb, comb through the nuance <laughs> if you like, but uh, go on. Uh, well, I'll, I'll give you a couple examples. One is um, – you know, there, there's a couple kids, you know, they, they come off like, you know, they're real grateful. And, and this is what maybe remind, reminded me of it was, you know, they're they're real nice and real like, you know, thoughtful and, and talkative. And then, like like I said, they'll apply for, let's say, at their own apartment where they want to move out to. And they don't get it or they have to wait a little bit. And then, like I said, they will just completely do a 180 and get really explosive. They'll start throwing food. They'll start throwing dishes. They'll start breaking uh, windows. Um, and it's, 
it's like, what do you do? So our procedures, you know, you, you call the, it's called, you call security, they come over, they see what happened and then they call the police. And it's kind of like, what, what are you going to actually do to prevent this situation? But the police just come there, they take a statement, they talk to the kids for a while and then they leave. And it, you know, it, it happens again, like the next week or the week after, but um, so they, they can be really appreciative when you're giving them things. But then when you say, you know, oh, you have to wait for this or you even if they give something out, like uh, like whether it's their phone phone card or, or their bus card and they don't have it. And it's like, well, we we gave you that card for the whole month and now you don't have it. And we gave you another one and you lost that one. So you, you can't we can't give you a ride somewhere. You know, you have to have the consequences for, for getting these things. And plus it's so late and they just lose it. They actually absolutely lose it in a split second. Right. So, um, impulse control or deferral of gratification or patience, um, not necessarily the very highest skill set, uh, in the, um, the people that you've seen there. No, and in fact, it, it, it's it's quite like it's downward because, you know, they get angry or whatever and maybe they get, you know, something that they want out of it because let's say they get a telephone card, an extra one, because they don't want them to feel still angry. Um, so they, they'll give that to them, but they still at, afterwards get so down and, and they just get so like, uh, depressed and that's why they lock themselves in the rooms because it, you know, we want them to go get some therapy or something, but they think that if you go see a therapist that you're going to the loony bin, that you're psycho and then they don't get any sort of counseling whatsoever and they just kind of shut down and yeah, it's a, it's like a downward spiral for them because yeah, they don't have their family there with them. They don't have, uh, a lot of their friends and it's, it's rough because they just lock themselves in the room and that doesn't help anything. And I try talking to them, but if they're, you know, only coming out once or twice a day, they go to the bathroom and grab some food from the kitchen. And it's like, well, well, what, what can you do? Um, which is why like one of the biggest things you've said that's hit me hardest is like, if you think an idea is good, like, Oh, you want to take in these kids, you know, you want to do something and help out with some of the uh, war torn countries, then go ahead and go out and adopt a family, do it yourself or spread that idea and try to like collect like donations or charity for it and see how that works. See how that goes for you. Don't have, the government used force to redistribute the wealth and force these kids into this situation because ultimately they need a family. They need some sort of model of parents where they can grow up in, even if it's uh, later in their life, at least they'll have like two parents that are there to take care of them. And it's not just some government worker coming in every couple, you know, a couple hours to take care of them and then rotate out. And, and I mean, the, the, the retention is horrible. I mean, and I, I think it's just gotten 
worse recently with the influx because a lot of people I talked with that were working at these places were like there for a couple years, like eight years. Some of them like six years, seven years, and they were all they were all leaving. And it was like, wow, like is it really that bad? Has it really gotten so so worse with all the influx of kids and just the they don't really have any structure of how you're supposed to schedule their day for them because I've been to a couple of different places and they have different uh, schedules. Some places are really good. Like they have, you know, the food cooked and ready at these and these times and it's only available for an hour. And then if you don't get your food, that's it. And other places where they have to cook their own food and, and, and there's really no, there's no set way that they've, planned it all out they've kind of just left it up to these monthly meetings or weekly meetings with staff to like discuss how they can help but it really uh, you keep trying and then it feels like you're just you know you're just grinding your head against uh, a stone and it's it's going nowhere right yeah it it sort of struck me too like if you're if you really want to help refugees, let's just pretend they're all refugees. But if you really want to help refugees, as we pointed out on the show, and as Trump pointed out in his immigration speech, you can help 12 or 13 people in the Middle East for every one person you bring into the West. Exactly. Right. So if you if you if it was not sentimental, if it was not the desire to escape this, I don't know, voodoo witch curse of you're a racist or whatever, I mean – then you would help the people in the Middle East. You would work with uh, Saudi Arabia to open up its massive tent cities. You would uh, you would find ways to to help people in the Middle East. And um, you would also, dare I say, uh, if you were to find, uh, and they're not that hard to find, they're fairly prominent, if you were to find the people in the West who arguably started these wars or these proxy wars or this funding of various terrorist groups or various anti-terrorist groups or various groups in the Middle East – if you found that they had, I don't know, broken the law or, say, got involved in foreign conflicts without having Congress declare war, which is supposed to be the constitutional way America gets into conflicts or other places. Right. Uh, if you found that they had suppressed information or lied to the public or whatever, then wouldn't you bring them up on charges? Right. Because that that at least would be something to deter this constant meddling in Middle Eastern countries. And um, that's sort of two-pronged approach. If you wanted to, you know, you could set up charities to help people in the Middle East who are tragically displaced by a lot of Western meddling and other meddling in in their countries and more than meddling, of course. I mean, basically the disassembling of a very hard-won and repressive, obviously, regimes. But uh, I think that we can see in the aftermath of the collapse of certain Middle Eastern governments why the repressiveness may have been there because the repressiveness, while brutal, uh, could arguably be considered somewhat better than the unbelievable chaos uh, and disaster that that followed the uh, end of these uh, repressive regimes. So, yeah, I mean, it's it's one of these situations where you kind of need a two-pronged effort to try and figure out what was going on domestically, legally, but just not going to happen. And then, of course, you would do an intelligent and sensible approach to uh, dealing with the refugees in the Middle East. And... Um, these things aren't about to happen. They they aren't about to happen. Um, and it is one of the great tragedies, you know, for 30 years or more, 
I have been arguing against the power of the state, the power of fiat currency, uh, the power of militarism, the power of imperialism. And um, most people have thought I was crazy. Most people have, have said uh, it's an extremist view. It's crazy. I've said to people, put your personal relationships to the test uh, and, and figure out how to get people to wake up to this stuff because it is really important. And people have said, oh, well, that seems very extreme. It seems that's crazy. I mean, you, 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 can't, you can't make virtue a test of your personal relationships. Okay, well, then you don't have to. Of course you don't have to. Right. But then what happens if you don't? Well, you, might find, uh, you may find that your relationships are changing anyway. Uh, oh, yeah. And you may find that your culture changes anyway. The other thing I thought of as well is that if you're in the Middle East, and let's say you have five sons, and you hear, I guess, with all of this social media and information jumping over the internet, you hear that, that Europe is open for welfare, right? That you can right. go to Europe and you can get three or four or five or six times the income you could make in your Middle Eastern country mm-hmm. just by showing up. Uh, it seems like a pretty good deal, right? I mean, if if people in America were offered, I don't know, $400,000 a year of free stuff to go to Qatar or something, yeah, there'd be some who'd be kind of interested, particularly if they were had been unemployed and, and particularly if maybe their unemployment benefits were running out and so on. Then if you have five sons, they're all going to be, you know, scattered through the bell curve of intelligence. And I just, I wonder, I don't know the answer to this, because testing will never be done, of course, but I just wonder, would you send your very smartest kids to Europe? Would you send the ones who are going to make it no matter where they are, who are going to be the doctors and the lawyers or wherever? Would you say to those guys, yeah, doctor, lawyer, IQ, 130 people, IQ, 140 kids, you head off to Europe and we'll keep the other one. You know, I just, I don't know that it's really going to work. I don't know that it would really work out that way. Well, like you said, it's it's like an artificial climate you're affecting these peoples through epigenetics and they're not able to really say no because you know nobody says no to free stuff you you give that to them and especially like from these cultures and you know it could be lower intelligence that you send let's say and you know they're coming up they're getting hit by cars they're being smuggled in i think some of them have suffocated in uh, trucks along the way up. It, it's it's a brutal way to to make that trek all the way up for yeah, like you said, all this money, and then eventually mathematics is is going to you know work out so that they don't get the welfare anymore. And what are they going to do then? What are the smartest people going to do if they didn't go to college and didn't get their degree? And I mean, ultimately, these people. I mean, they want to go home. They want to be with their families. It's it's like you would want to be around your culture and, and where you grew up. And I just think that it's so sad for all these the kids because it's like they're they're coming in to yeah soak up all the welfare, and then what's going to be there for them? I mean, there's no not many women to take in all these men. Uh, to match up with them, and you have this climate now where they're, you know, going to be expecting money each month, and when that money runs out, what are they going to do? Yeah, I mean, I, I can't prove any of this, but I've had some darkish thoughts that that throughout history, 
governments make extravagant promises to their populations, which they cannot possibly fulfill. I mean, I don't know what it's like in in Sweden, but unfunded liabilities in the United States are north of $170 trillion. You know, on an economy of 15 or $16 trillion a year, it's completely impossible for Western governments as a whole to keep their promises to their populations. You know, and all of the supposed austerity was, all it was was tax increases. The, The government spending was barely cut at all throughout most of Europe. So generally what happens is when governments cannot keep their promises, they go to war. Right. Right. And, and then, hey, we, we have less excess population, so we can uh, not, uh, we don't have to pay out as much. And of course, people are willing to give up benefits if they're in a state of extremity. Mm-hmm. And Europe, with its inverted pyramid of birth rates, um, it's mental, right? I mean, it's like 1.1, 1.2, 1.3. No possibility that the retiring boomers can be sustained, I believe, with the, uh, especially now that there's the euro, there's not even any sort of competition of devaluation or competition of interest rates or competition of soft yeah. defaults. I mean, it's all, they're all locked in together, right? Right. People say to me, Steph, you sound like a nationalist. It's like, compared to globalism, nationalism is paradise. <laughs> Right. And so there's one possibility. And, it, you know, a lot of this, I think, has to do with sentimentality uh, and uh, not knowing basic biology and all, all this all this sort of stuff. But I, I do think that there's a possibility, however unconscious it may be, that potential conflicts are being stirred up in order to cover up the fact that that the European governments simply won't be able to pay their bills. Now, they can't go to war against each other. Because they've got nukes and they've got whatever, right? I mean, then they, they just couldn't. I mean, good Lord. It's only 70 years since the last one that killed 40 to 50 million people. So I don't think that they'll be doing that again. So if they can't print their way, money print their way out of their unfunded liabilities, they certainly can't tax their way out of their unfunded liabilities because there's not enough tax on the planet to cover even America's debts, I believe. And they can't borrow their way out of their problems. So they can't wage war, they can't print, they can't borrow. And they sure as hell aren't going to sit down with their population and say, you're kidding, right? You knew this shit couldn't last. You knew, you you know, if you've done grade two math, you know for sure that this, everything we're saying was completely coming out of our ass. And, And you were all completely ridiculous. We were all colluding in this game. You know, like how when you're playing uh, hide-and-go-seek with a three-year-old and she covers her eyes and you say, I can't see you because you've covered your eyes. I mean, right. we, we were all colluding in this absolute fantasy league football of nonsense that, you know, we pretended to make you promises that we could pay for and you pretended to believe them and then you voted for us. And there was no conceivable way that this could be sustained and the media was in on it and the movies were in on it and the songs were in on it and everyone was in on it. Everyone was just... Pretending, extend and pretend. Let's extend the debts, extend the loans, extend the credit, and let's pretend that we can pay even a dime on the dollar of what we owe. And there's no politician that's coming along and saying that basic reality that, come on, I mean, (laughs) you've got to be kidding me. This is why I don't go into politics. As I'd said, I'd sell, you know, I'd say 1% of the truth that people need to hear. And it (laughs) I mean, that would be it for my political career. People have become extraordinarily wed to fantasy. Uh, they've become extraordinarily wed to 
unreality. Absolute, mad, crazy, delusional, like they'd lock you up if you were the only person who believed this, right? I make $150,000 a year. I'm in debt for $15 billion. I'm sure I'll be able to pay you. Like, that would be stuff that would be like, sorry, you, you need a rubber room and some Thorazine up your ass. So in Europe, there's been this mass delusion since, uh, since the Second World War. And before that, but basically it's this mass delusion that somehow magic is going to happen. Somehow magic is going to happen and all of this madness is going to be payable. It's not. It's absolutely not. It's never going to happen. People need to get that through their heads right now. But they don't want to believe it. I mean, you talk about any kind of austerity and everyone goes insane. Right? And so... The, the, to me, the migrant crisis, uh, which is still to come, I believe, but the migrant crisis as it stands, is the shadow cast by the self-delusion of the Europeans. The self-delusion that they can um, not have children, but have their pensions, even though they know. Everybody knows. The government right. takes money from you. It does not use it. It doesn't put it in a lockbox. It's not there secure. If you doesn't tie it to the belly of a yak and send it off into the wilderness so that no one can take it. The government takes money from you for your pensions. Spends it on you, uh, but uses it as collateral to pretend that it can generate wealth, right? I mean, uh, it looks like I'm working as long as my visa doesn't <laughs> run out of money uh, or run out of credit. And so in the West, everybody had this belief, well, you know, we don't have to have any kids. And I'm sure we'll, our economy will go really fine. And now, not having kids is perfectly fine. Just understand that if you don't have kids, you shouldn't have a pension because that's how the kids that's how the pension gets paid, is they tax the kids to pay for the pension. So if you don't feel like it, if it's too much work for you, if it's too difficult for you, then that's, uh, that's fine. But then recognize that if, you know, and, and the, the politicians should be saying this. They should be saying, well, you all didn't have kids, so there's no money. To, there's, no one to, there's no one to tax for your pensions. Sorry, you know, but you had fun not having kids, didn't you? Saved yourself a lot of money and uh, didn't have to get up in the middle of the night, didn't get leaky, didn't get squishy, don't have stretch marks, less cellulite. So you had a great time not having kids, um, but everything comes at a price. And if you don't have kids, then there's a big hollowing out of the economy. There's not enough of a tax base to sustain your pensions. So hello, cat food coupons, because that's where you're heading. But of course, you know, with the exception of Trump, there's not a politician out there, and maybe a couple of people in the, um, in the West. But there aren't politicians out there talking much about how the economy is completely unsustainable. And it's a fantasy ride off a Thelma and Louise cocaine trip of a cliff. And so if, if things come to a head with this migrant crisis, right? If, you know, I've, I've certainly heard the argument that Lebanon brought about a bunch of um, refugees in and ended up with a civil war to, to one degree. If, if this is the way it goes, I hope it isn't, but uh um, I'm not going to give a percentage of my hope, but um, then the, you're going to get the kind of crisis that means that the European governments don't have to pay off their bills, right? I mean, uh, because there'll be enough of a crisis that people will say, oh, forget forget my pension. I just you know want to make it through to next week. So the migrant crisis to me this is just my personal opinion, is a reflection of 
the Europeans' thirst for falsehoods, for lies, for for their inability to process the basic realities of their national debts, for their inability to process the basic unworkability of something like the EU. Yeah, fine, have the EU, but then you have to have fiscal restraint. And of course, the whole point of the EU was what deficits weren't supposed to be more than 3% of your, right? Nobody cares, doesn't matter. Let's just grab onto Germany's interest rates and suck it dry. And so you get addicted to unreality and you get exploited. And you get addicted to unreality and your civilization is going to face some challenges. And I think that, to me, is is not... The, the migrant crisis is not a cause. It is a symptom of white Western Europeans' addiction to unreality, which has a bunch of causes which we don't have to get into right now. I've talked about them before. But I think that, to me, is the closest I can get to what's going on, if that makes any sense. Yeah, um, I know that I looked up, I think it was Hungary or one of these countries that repaid their debt after some severe austerity measures and they like paid it back like ahead of schedule when they actually cut everything. Um, I'm not sure with Sweden how how big their debt is, but I know that they've tried to have their banks like separate from the EU banks. But I've seen, um, when I talk with people here, they say that, you know, they say Hillary's policies are going to be helping the banks in Sweden. And I just tell them, well, look at what Hillary's policies have done with Libya, with, uh, with Iraq, with, with Syria, and now, uh, everything that's coming up through the migrant crisis is because of her policies. And somebody else mentioned about what she did to Yugoslavia back in the day. And that also kind of took me back because I didn't even think that far back. Um, and how I think it was that secret service agent we were talking to how Hillary and, and Bill, they both have like the same type of, um, way of handling, uh, foreign foreign policy where bill with the black hawk down situation he just didn't send in enough money or whatever uh troops or equipment that they needed and then same thing with hillary and libya she didn't send in the people to save uh ambassador and all those others and i just you know i i give that argument and people don't know what to say here they're just like uh well what should we do and I'm just like, how about, you know, focusing on putting blame where, where it belongs, like, you know, whether it's the French government or the American government going into the Middle East, even though, let's say, France democratically voted to stay out of the Middle East and the government went, went in anyways. It's like, well, then they, ISIS threatened to, to do those attacks, just like that guy in Orlando threatened to attack because his, his home country was under attack and... Uh, I just see, I see it, and I try to spread it as much as I can and tell, talk to people as much as I can about it and try to put blame and get them to realize 
what we're doing and what's going on. And like you said, you know, America hasn't declared war since, you know, World War II. And yet we freely go through all those, uh, all those uh, Middle Eastern countries and a lot of other places people don't know where we're at. And it's, it's like, why, why, why are you there? And it, you just want them to, to stop it. Just to get the hell out of there. It's none of your business. Just leave it alone. And these people will stop attacking you because those that like Switzerland and hasn't had any uh, terrorist attacks and, as far as I know, Sweden they have has. been uh, they have been threatened though. But yeah, I know what you mean. Right. Well, they haven't joined the war, so therefore, yeah, the terrorists haven't actually done any attacks against them. And that's where I kind of stand. Is like, well, just leave these people alone. Let them, you know, solve things without bombs blowing up over their heads, and just, yeah, just uh, leave them alone. And with. Uh, things like Brexit going on where they're establishing that they want their independence again and they want their choice with their borders. And it's, it's inspiring. But when you look at it through the mainstream media, it's, it's like everybody just sits there and, and says, Oh, it's so horrible. And I asked them, well, why, why is it so horrible? And they, they don't know why, like they have no argument. Like you're, uh, I love your Ben Garrison, uh, Ben Garrison's, uh, his pictures of you, like deflecting all those, uh, uh, adjectives or adverbs and, you know, oh, it's a racist, sexist or whatever. And you just like, you know, not an argument. And, uh, uh it, it's so true. It's like, I asked, well, what did Trump say to this reporter that you think is so bad? What about his policies? Don't you like, and then they, they they can't say they're just like he's a racist i'm like well, what what is what does he do they're like oh he's racist against muslims and i'm like well islam isn't a race so what is it um when you actually get past it and get past the emails and you say well russia wasn't behind all the emails being leaked you know what's actually talk what's in the emails now and they don't have any answer for it it's like they want to <laughs> say well the person that, that that they want to kill the messenger and why you know you, you just want to throw the body on the floor and and then just run for it it just doesn't make sense why people that follow the mainstream media they, they just get so caught up in, in in the drama of things and they don't have any facts that they they're relying on yeah, and this is this is where we are in general in the West, and with some exceptions. I mean, the listeners to this show and, and other people who are really challenging the narratives and, and doing some fantastic work that way. I'm thinking about, of course, like people like Mike, Mike Cernovich, Charles C. Johnson, uh, Milo, and some of the Bill Whittle stuff and all. I mean, people are really challenging. There's lots of audiences out there who want the facts, who want the truth. Yeah, I think it was Bill Whittle. But the vast majority of people, um, uh, they don't even want to think. Like thinking is a threat to them. Thinking is a challenge to them. Thinking is something that they run the opposite. Thinking is a predator to their brittle house of cards set of inherited or indoctrinated mere opinions. And so the idea that we would subjugate the contents of our brain to facts, reason, evidence, and reality is anathema to a majority of people in the West. And, um, you know, how hard is it to win a sword fight with a blind man? Well, 
not not that hard if you know he just just suddenly wrapped something around his eyes and hasn't practiced so yeah you can blind yourself you can reject reality you can reject truth truth you can reject reason you can join the mob and you can hunt down the rational people in your society and take them to task and and call them out and set fire to them in pyres and all that and all that means is that your society is doomed that's all i mean that's all that means and you, you can give up on reality but that doesn't mean that reality is going to change to your whims so uh, that of course is um, the price that we pay for, I don't know, a couple of hundred years of irrational philosophy uh, that has uh, subjugated the individual to the group, the uh, reality to subjectivism, uh, facts to feelings, and um, we're now rudderless in a high wind. But um, anyway, I'm going to move on to the next caller. Thank you so much. Uh, it was very, very interesting to get this uh, information. I certainly wish you the best, and thank you so much for taking the time to call in. All right. Take care. All right, up next we have Diane. Diane wrote in and said, Is acknowledging our specific deficiencies and differences as people divisive or helpful? From anecdotal experience, I find myself questioning whether or not it helps to know the truth, especially when we're talking about genetic trends. To give a less touchy example, does it help a young girl growing up without a father to make better decisions if she knows that there's a strong likelihood she will make bad decisions due to his absence in most cases? Or are you accepting the behavior slash likelihood by acknowledging the trend? That's from Diane. Oh, hey, Diane. How you doing? Hi, I'm doing well. How are you, Seth? Well, thank you. Yes, I have heard this perspective before, which is not to rob you of your unique individuality. But um, uh, do you want to expand more on the uh, on the question? Um, sure. I, I'm not necessarily advocating for... Um, hiding the truth in any case. So it's not like a not knowing is sometimes better. Um, at least that's not what I'm trying to say. I'm not necessarily settled on either perspective. It's just, it seems to me in cases where things have happened to you, where you're not the person who has initiated, you know, it's happening like, you know, the genetic hand you're dealt, you have absolutely no say in. If your father, you know, is absentee or just, you know, decides he doesn't care about you or you're adopted or whatever, you don't have a say in those kinds of things. And in my own personal experience, which I know is not, you know, empirical by any means, it does seem that the the knowledge of that impact is not helpful to those individuals. I mean, even in my own specific personal experience, with different things that have happened to me, I feel um, even the knowing and trying to be objective about it and understanding how things have impacted the way that I make decisions and the way that I view my position in the world and all that stuff, I can say I see how these are connected, but it doesn't keep me from actually making those decisions and feeling that way a lot of the time. And I am have a growing concern not so much about people knowing and better understanding themselves, but of how that knowledge is going to potentially be used to create um, division and focus on things that I don't think are the most important in life and in our society and are actually not going to be conducive to us unifying and moving towards any kind of productive you know, society in any sense, really. That's quite a that's quite a dance. All right, <laughs> it's quite a, quite a delicate dance around some delicate uh, topics. Um, uh, 
So let, let's just take your, your example. Does it help a young girl growing up without a father to make better decisions if she knows that there's a strong likelihood she will make bad decisions due to his absence, right? Mm-hmm. So you're talking about withholding information from someone because it might make them feel bad. It might make the woman feel bad. And it's interesting that your example was a female, but you're a female. It's all right. Um, so should, should we withhold information from people because it might make them feel upset in the short run? Um, well, I wasn't. I'm doing a delicate dance again. You'll have to forgive me. Um, Let, let's not. <laughs> let's just let's be blunt. Let's just talk about this young girl. Let's just be blunt about it, right? Well, because the, the the focus that I have on this is not so much that um, the information isn't available. It's how much are you putting it in people's faces? So in the sense that, you know, let's say I have a friend who, you know, father's not around and I see her daddy issues. It's plain as day to me. You know, it, I maybe would not make the decision to say, hey, maybe you're, you know, really easy to sleep with or you're constantly doing these kinds of things because you're angry at your dad. You know, instead, I would more than likely because I'm a woman and I don't want to hurt someone's feelings. You know, that's fair. I don't want to go and say, hey, you have daddy issues because I don't want to also give her an incentive to be like, well, I've been screwed over by my dad. And so I have these issues already. I'm just going to keep making the decisions, you know, and if anything feel validated almost because there's an explanation now for why the bad behavior is going on. Well, um, do, do we say that to smokers? Do we say to smokers, oh, well, we better withhold from you the dangers of smoking. It's association with emphysema, lung cancer, and other problems. We can withhold all this information because we don't want you to say, oh, well, I'm a smoker. I guess I'm doomed already. I guess I'll double down on my smoking, right? We, you just, we, we, we don't want to manipulate people. We just we give them the information, right? Give them the information. And if they screw it up, <laughs> so what? You know, does that mean we withhold information? Does it mean we don't have tests because some kids are going to fail? Does it mean we don't have races because some kids are going to trip or some kids are going to be fat and slow? Do, do we not have anything? Do we not have modeling agencies because it's going to make some women feel or some men feel um, less pretty? Do we not have great actors because then bad actors can't get a role and they'll feel bad? I mean, where on earth would that possibly stop? We, 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 we give the facts. And the reason why I'm sort of more emphatic about this is as, as, as a white male, as, white, as a white male, nobody ever decided to withhold information from me about my privilege and my patriarchy and my apparent misogyny and, and, and whatever it is, right? Nobody said, well, you know, we better, we, we better really worry about the feelings of those white males because, boy, you know, they're, they're pretty sensitive and, and we don't want to, you know, like I was reading this article the other day, just and it's a very typical article, and the article goes something like this. Um, people support Trump because they're white, they're male, they're scared, they're angry, and they don't like diversity. <laughs> you know, just, you know, whatever. Like, they're afraid that, that, that minorities now have a voice in their country and they're lashing it. Like, just, you know, made up nonsense and all that. And nobody's sitting there and saying, well, you know, we better not say this, even if this was true, right? It's not. But if, if it was true, um, would, would, was, is anyone saying, well, you know, we really shouldn't publish this article because it's really going to make those white male bigots feel bad, right? I mean, so, you know, if we're going to have this rule, it would be nice if it was occasionally applied to white males as well as everyone else. But given that it's not, I don't really care about how other people feel bad because facts. Oh, okay, well, let me, let me maybe give you a slightly different example because I'm, I'm not trying to say that 
a light should never be shined on things that are just seem to be realities, you know, when you're just studying the data and trends and whatever. So the one of the main people that, you know, kind of stimulated this question for me, um, and I only recently discovered IQ trends through listening to your show. It was not something I ever spent any time thinking about. I always was just like, people are people and they're really, you know, there's no rhyme to reason to it. You know, I was just a young, ignorant kid, whatever. So I am friends with a young black girl and she has failed out of nursing school twice. And you can imagine through, you know, loans being so easy to get and her being a minority and a woman, you know, she's just never going to be denied. She could go again and they would not deny her. They would reissue the loan, you know, despite the fact that she's clearly demonstrated that she doesn't have um, the capability, whether that's, you know, due to her, you know, genetic hand or not, she's obviously not capable of uh, competing in that environment. It's clear she's failed twice. Um, what I would suggest in, in my thinking, because I, you know, heard you talk about this, that if we just removed a lot of the principles that are in place that are allowing people to live in fantasies, you know, because you can just go borrow money with no consequence and with no qualification, you know, and then you don't have to self-examine and you don't have to say, why am I not doing well? Because you can just go back again and keep trying. And, you know, it's not my money anyway, so who cares? You know, it's just the attitude of most young people these days. If we took that away where she would still have to demonstrate, you know, more, um, be, as more, be more of a positive investment for a bank, you know, back when loans were privatized and stuff. And, you know, so they maybe would have had her submit to an IQ test if they, you know, were aware of, you know, certain trends within groups and stuff. And it was harder for her to get into this situation where she's setting, she is set up to fail. You know, she is. If those things already existed where the free market was weeding out and not really letting people get artificially put in these situations where they can't succeed, then it happens anyway without you necessarily being like, oh, it's, you know, just likely because you're black. Do you, do you understand what I'm trying to say? Yeah, no, I mean, I understand it. I mean, let, let's take a sort of slightly different example just so I can talk about it more personally, right? So... As I've talked about on this show before, uh, Asians uh, uh, score very high in sort of math, right? And and um, in particular in in uh, language abilities, uh, Ashkenazi Jews are through the roof, right? Like two standard deviations sometimes above above whites, right? So let's say that I was going into a language course that was populated by a lot of Ashkenazi Jews, right? Or let's say I was going into a math course that was populated by a lot of, you know, Chinese, Japanese, Koreans, and so on, right? Would I want to know that for whatever reason, these groups had particular, had higher skill scores than my group on average, right? That, that the Asians would be better at math, that the Ashkenazi Jews would be better at uh, language skills and so on. Would I want to know that? Well, Yes, I would want to know that for a variety of reasons. Number one, uh, I can say, okay, well, if I have to, like, if I'm, if if the bell curve is that they're going to be higher on the bell curve than me, then I'm going to have to work a hell of a lot harder to to make it right. And and that could be great. That could be I could end up being better because of that, right? Like the old argument that if someone says to you, hey, you've got uh, a a um a, his, a family history of heart defects. Uh, that show up or heart disease that shows up in your 40s. Uh, and then you say, okay, well, I'm going to 
eat well, I'm going to exercise and keep my weight down, all that kind of good stuff. And then as a result, you end up healthier than somebody who didn't even have this potential heart problem, right? So it it doesn't mean, like if, if, if I say, well, you know, I may have some deficiencies relative to these other groups, that doesn't mean I can't do it. It just means that I recognize that I may have a deficiency or, or on average. Of course, I could go in and be the very best mathematician among all the Asians. I could be the very best playwright among all of the Jews. Like it, it doesn't, these are all trends in large populations. It's, you can't apply these to sort of every individual circumstance or situation. Right. But the, the, the other thing, the last thing I'll say about this is that let's say that um, I believed that uh, all of the Asians uh, in the math class hated big-nosed foreign people, <laughs> just hated uh, wh- white people. And what, how, would that, how, how would that help me to process problems that I might be having in the class? Because if there was a problem, if I was failing to compete, if I was failing to, to do well, and I, I had a friend um, many years ago who was like top of the deal, uh, this wasn't in my high school, but another high school. He was he was top of the deal in in high school math. Like he was the kind of guy who would get like a hundred and four percent bonus questions. Like he was he was top of the heap, and he didn't really have to work at it. Uh, he was just really really good at it, and um, so he was so confident that he went to a university uh, out west, and he decided to take a math and physics double major. Ooh, ooh. And uh, it turns out uh, the fact that high school was so easy for him with regards to math and physics was not a good thing because he hadn't developed humility or hard work habits and so on. So he went from being, you know, big fish in a little pond to little fish in a big pond and uh, flunked out. Just couldn't, couldn't make it. Now, because he was white, he didn't have, I don't know, it's racism or whatever it is, some, some sort of thing that would not help him in terms of his future life endeavors. Because if he sort of were to blame his crashing out of those courses because of racism, then that racism would be everywhere he went. It wouldn't be specific to that course and his abilities and the competition and this, that, and the other. It would be everywhere he went. And those kinds of issues are really, really important. Uh, As soon as you give people some systemic excuse, you are taking something that... Maybe a one-time thing in, in one particular area, and you're making it something much more universal. Right? So if I go to Japan and I flunk out of Japanese math school or something, or I just don't do well or whatever, and then I think it's it's not because I lack abilities or not because there are bell curves in abilities across different ethnicities, but because those Japanese people are just horribly racist towards white people. Well, let's say I can't leave Japan for whatever reason, then everywhere I go, I can't, like, I can't find anywhere I can succeed because everywhere I go is going to be anti-white racism from the Japanese, right? All right. I, I understand what you're saying in the whole crutch seeking and how that's an issue. And I'm, I'm more seeing... Uh, and again, I'm not trying to say we shouldn't have the, you know, people shouldn't be doing studies or, you know, the knowledge shouldn't be collected. But I see a rise in um, in actual, uh, I guess, the, the white nationalism that I feel is going to start leaning on a lot of this 
data as a reason to to really actually discriminate where we have never in the past. Um, like I think it will happen in Europe as well because we see these very startling trends. And instead of focusing on saying, okay, let's let the country naturally compete because in your scenarios, you know, you were playing it out like there had to be a crutch somewhere to lean on, you know, and that is true in a lot of ways because of all the social narratives we have going, we're offering people excuses for why they're failing constantly. And, you know, I personally see if we're spending too much time focusing on the fact that, you know, blacks tend to underperform in a lot of these different things or, you know, pick a ethnic group and then pick a deficiency, whatever. Then we're focused on that instead of saying, okay, well, we know that there are exceptions and individuals who are not going to fall into those trends. So how can we just have um, our society laid out where people can fall where they actually should, you know, instead well, that's, of, but instead that's, of, that's just a free society, right? I mean, that's just a free society. And I, I still, you know, I, I was talking about this with Bill Whittle. I have significant optimism that there are ways to close the IQ gap between, say, blacks and Asians or blacks and Ashkenazi Jews or blacks and whites. We were talking about um, charter schools that they can, they've closed up to a third of a standard deviation. And again, there may be explanations for that that are less environmental, but um, I have some optimism as ways to do it. And the way to do it is to have a free society, a free society where uh, the uh, parents are able to choose uh, the schools for their children, uh, are able to get the best quality education for their children. These are all things that would do enormous good into closing off some of these disparities because for reasons we've talked about on this show before right now, uh, it tends to be self-perpetuating and self-reinforcing. How far can that go? I don't know. Um, but um, these things need to be uh, talked about because if there are, as there seem to be, genetic differences between ethnicities uh, that give them all, you know, there's no superior, there's no inferior, it's all just strengths and weaknesses, as you'd expect. But if these things can't be talked about and massive policies are being enacted, which basically say that all deficiencies, say, in the Hispanic community arise from white racism, when there are, as we talked about with Dr. Jason Richwine on this show, there are some indications that uh, Hispanics, or I guess you could say mestizos, um, have uh, slightly lower IQs than, say, Asians. If everything is going to be explained away by mere racism, then what happens is there is a terrible injustice that is occurring. And that terrible injustice is occurring against white people who are being called racist for things which are not the fault of white people, which is uh, human biodiversity. And so the idea that if we keep this information suppressed, somehow we get a peaceful and <laughs> easy and free society is not uh, it's not the case. We need facts to consistently be introduced into the public sphere of discourse. We need facts to be introduced consistently, especially when they're really important facts. And um, when people push facts out of the public discourse, they don't solve problems. They don't solve problems. It's like not going to the doctor when you have an ailment. It doesn't solve the problem it generally tends to make it worse. And um, of course, getting facts into the public discourse allows us to have a civilized discussion before tempers get so short that more radical solutions are proposed or more aggressive solutions are proposed, which is what we don't want in society. We want to have honest conversations based on facts so that we can avoid the kind of extremities that occur when facts are suppressed for too long and people get incredibly frustrated and alienated and angry and explosive. Right. Well, I guess that last part is really where 
I have my hesitation and not about them never being talked about or never being introduced or anything like that. But I, I was talking with my husband about this and I gave the example because I had just listened to one of your podcasts with Box Day and it, you know, had me asking a lot of questions myself, you know, um, about how I perceived these other ethnic groups because I went from you know, being somebody who really didn't think that there were trends amongst groups of people to, you know, totally having the veil ripped away. So, you know, we all know, and it's an undeniable truth that Blacks, specifically Black men, commit a disproportionate amount of violent crime. You know, and you've done plenty of presentations on this. The left will see that and say, oh, well, it's because of systemic racism and, you know, slavery and all this stuff. And, you know, we just need to funnel more money into the welfare system or whatever to, you know, solve that issue. You know, we're going to use more government to, you know, solve this problem that they pretend government and, you know, assist in creating. Then you have the white nationalism, which I think is gaining traction and leaning a little bit more towards um, uh, being less reasonable, maybe than than Vox Day was about it, at least that that's the tenor that I'm getting from the internet, which, you know, maybe isn't the best um, example. What you, and I, look, I don't know much about white nationalism, but what do you find less reasonable about it? Oh, well, look at this. I've got to put you on the spot. <laughs> well, let me, let me finish the analogy really quick. Mm. That, that might explain to you what I see as, as being the problem, just specifically with that. Um, they'll see that you know, blacks commit a disproportionate amount of violent crime and say, well, there are all these genetic reasons that can explain that. And that's true. There is a lot of genetic information that we see in the lack of impulse control, the inability to defer gratification, and these different reproductive strategies that have been adapted into the geographical locations they're from, from, you know, however long, is a lot of very deeply ingrained things that are coming out you know, as we're shining a light on them because we, you know, can't escape <laughs> the reality. Of well, and sorry, things. just very briefly as well, the welfare state by uh, subsidizing births by the least responsible people in society tends to be dumbing down the population as a whole. This is occurring across all ethnicities. But sorry, go ahead. Right, of course. And that removes the last form of natural selection that we have since modern medicine. You know, we're we're literally funding the and and using modern medicine to preserve the negative reproductive strategies and the lower successful or who would be the lower likely to success, you know, on these end. So someone who's, um, I guess, in between white nationalism and conservatism, you know, maybe more on the side of libertarian, not quite the practical anarchist, I think is what you call it, for you would say, okay, well, there are definitely these genetic contributing factors, but there is also this bigger problem that we can actually do something about that has to do with government, you know, that has to do with welfare and all these other things. Because I feel and I'm seeing um, because of all of these um, negative cultures that are being brought in into the West, period. You know, you, your last call with the guy from or who is, uh, I don't know if he was Swedish or just working in Sweden, you know, is a perfect example. Like, you know, you have all these ignorant Westerners who are now being confronted with this awful, horrible culture of, you know, people who are just nothing like them whatsoever. And then in response to that, instead of saying, okay, well, maybe we really need to focus more on having um, a totally different approach as a government 
and as a society overall within our own country, they start to swing towards, well, white people have done everything. You know, whites have the superior genetics and, you know, and Asians, you know, tack on the at all there and the Jews and whatever, you know, and they start to focus more on just the division instead of saying, well, a lot of you are here and can't, nothing can be done about that. We have a bunch of black Americans that are generations in having been here. What are we going to do? Just like deport them back to Africa because they commit the majority of the crimes. Like that's not a solution. You know, we need to be focusing more on saying, okay, there might be these trends, but how can we, you know, actually change the government and society to let things happen naturally instead of just zeroing in because we're frustrated and angry and people are constantly in our because they're doing that and I sympathize with white males who are just so angry because nobody listens to them and nobody gives a damn about them anymore and so they're just like you know what screw everybody else oh no no it's not that nobody listens it's that they're constantly being insulted attacked and blamed for everything that goes wrong in the world and nobody listening would be a vast improvement (laughs) nobody paying attention would be a vast improvement um well so I mean justice then yeah, no, I mean, it's it's worse than you know, indifference or, or neglect would be a huge step in, step in the right direction. Um, so, you know, I mean, I've done a, a bunch of videos that, um, you know, encourage minority parents, in particular black parents, not to spank, right? Because according to the research, the warrior gene is much more prevalent among uh, black uh, kids and uh, particularly black males. And so we don't want to use spanking or physical aggression uh, at any times, but in particular in that population. And um, we've had some great response from black families who've um, taken that approach and, and noticed things getting much better. And so, you know, I'm certainly doing uh, what, what I can do uh, and taking the bullets that I can take in order to try and bring better information to um Groups that, you know, otherwise um, won't get that information, right? I mean, is it is it more helpful to say to black families, well, you know, your kids are just going to be subjected to systemic, horrible white racism from now until the end of time. And there's nothing you can do about it other than, I don't know, burn down a <laughs> store from time to time. And I mean, or is it to say, you know, well... Um, what will be very helpful for your kids is if you give up on corporal punishment and, and reason and, and so and reason, reason with your kids and so on. That's going to help a lot. And uh, yeah, there may still be racism, but let's say you can't do anything about that. Here's something you can do uh, to empower. Uh, is that better? Is that more helpful? Is that something that's going to solve the problem? Well, yeah, I would say so. Uh, secondly, you know, if you're going to get, I don't know where you're getting information about sort of white uh, nationalism or or this alt-right stuff. I mean, if it's going to be Twitter accounts, it may not be <laughs> representing the full spectrum of of the thought about it. But um, there are reasons to be concerned about different ethnicities' abilities to live together in, in peace and harmony and productivity and happiness and so on. And that is, um, that is a, a challenge. And, you know, we're going to have to Look at this, and, and everybody knows that there are differences and, and frictions between ethnicities, and for the last 50-odd years, the answer has been white racism. White racism, white racism, white racism. No other problems, only white racism. And all other information about ethnic differences in IQ, ethnic differences in culture, ethnic differences in family composition, like if you just normalize for single motherhood, the black and white crime disparity largely disappears. 
there are similar races uh, that have significant conflicts that aren't racial based. I mean, if you look at Northern and Southern Ireland, I mean, all all whites. And, you know, if you look at Europe, uh, pretty much white uh, and um, uh, two world wars in, in 50 odd years or 60 odd years. So uh, if you look at the Arabs, we were just talking about this is the Swedish guy, right? The Arabs fighting Arabs and so on. There's it, uh, human beings are tribal. We're a tribal species. We are a tribal species. Some of that shows up in culture. Some of that shows up in language. Some of that shows up in history. Some of that, some of that shows up in ethnicity. And some of that shows up in gender in that female in-group preference is pretty significant, which makes women a kind of inward focusing and inward promoting tribe. And men used to until they got the ball smashed out of them by political correctness and cultural Marxism. But that's a topic for another time. But human beings are tribal creatures. We, we always have been. Maybe we will in the future. Maybe we won't. And we know this, right? Because even those who talk about multiculturalism uh, as the uh, Shangri-La and the promised land for all time are themselves fiercely in-group preference and fiercely tribal, right? So as I've mentioned before, all the people at the New York Times who are largely on the left or almost exclusively on the left, almost exclusively vote Democrat, they're going to hire other Democrats. They're going to hire other people who think like them. And they're going to have their own little tribe of people who are on the left and people who vote Democrat and people who think that Donald Trump is like the reincarnation of Satan's uh, armpit or something. And they're going to hire people like themselves and they're going to keep people who are unlike themselves away. So even the people who promote this sort of multiculturalism, they have no interest in saying, wow, you know, we really better get a bunch of Republicans in here because, boy, you know, it's just uh, – <laughs> It's just terrible uh, that, that we're all thinking the same way. We're not multicultural enough, right? They don't, you know, they're willing to hire anyone who votes left, <laughs> I guess you could say. Uh, I remember reading some article about uh, there was some, I don't know, uh, one of these social science places in in uh, uh, in university. And um, the guy came in to interview them and uh, and they were all Democrats and lefties and so on and he said, why don't you have any Republicans in here? Uh, and they said, well, two reasons. One, they're just not that interested. And two, they really can't cut it intellectually. And they're just not smart enough. And he said, oh, that's interesting. Is there any other group that you would say that about? Blacks, um, uh, Muslims, uh, uh, women. Like, would you say, well, they're, they're not that interested. And frankly, they're just not smart enough. And they, of course, yeah, everything went silent, right? Because that was their tribe. Everyone's got a tribe. Everyone's got a tribe. And this basic reality of human existence, that even those who say multiculturalism, diversity is a value, they're not interested <laughs> in diversity. They're not interested in any of that kind of stuff. They want people around them themselves who think like themselves. It's the lunchroom test. You know, how do people congregate in the lunchroom where you can't force to sign seating? It's the church test. Like 90% of churches in America are either one race or another. Um, it's the Chinatown test, you know, like if you've just come over from China, where do you want to go and live? You want to go and live in Chinatown or Little Italy or Greek Town or wherever it's going to be. And, you know, maybe over time things can blend and all that. But the reality is we are a tribal species. And um, in-group preferences are significant and important. It's the whole reason why we evolved is that you have in-group preferences. Uh, you, you tend to uh, prefer people who are genetically closer to yourself than people who are more distant from yourself genetically uh, in general. And again, this is lots of differences and lots of people who like reaching across the aisle and all that. But uh, anybody who says I care for any random stranger's child as much as my own child is either insane or just lying because we care for our own children more than we care for the children of strangers because they're genetically closer to us. 
And so all of this is um, basic reality that used to be accepted and like all you know, if, if you if you aim to destroy a civilization, all you need to do is replace common sense with delusion. All you need to do is replace common sense with delusion, and that civilization will fall. And it may take generations, but it will happen inevitably. And the way that you do it is you viciously attack people for stating basic truths, basic realities. You just viciously attack them for stating basic realities, and then people shy away from it. You know, as we talked about with a guy in Sweden, you know, it's considered liable, is it, to have hesitations about the migrant crisis or migrant program? Okay, so people will stop talking about it because they don't want to go to jail. Well, um, that just accelerates. It hits the gas on the unraveling because when you punish people for speaking the truth, you are damning your civilization to disaster and decay. So I think for – I don't know about the alt-right and I don't know about white nationalism. I don't really know much about – certainly the white nationalism. I have had a show or two about the alt-right – but people are getting pretty sick and tired of being called racist all the time. Sorry, you know, pretty sick and tired of being called racist all the time. People are getting pretty sick and tired of seeing other ethnic groups disproportionately consume welfare and their tax dollars and work less. And they're just getting tired of it. And the solution to this is to me, bring honest conversations uh, about race, however uncomfortable it can be about ethnicity, bring these honest conversations into the mainstream. I don't have a huge amount of hope that that's going to happen, but that's what needs to happen. And um, what happens if this conversation is suppressed for long enough? Well, we know this from before, right? If you if you hold down a, a helium balloon long enough, and then eventually you're going to get tired and let it go, and then it's going to pop up pretty hard. So the more this conversation is suppressed, the more the people are pushed back into the corners and screamed at for bringing basic facts, for bringing basic issues or basic problems to um, trying to bring those basic issues and problems and pain. You know, there's there's pain in all ethnicities at the moment. I mean, the, the Asians feel excluded, the whites feel traumatized, the blacks feel oppressed, um, the, the uh, Mexicans feel hunted. Uh, I mean, there is a lot of frustration and um, upset uh, among ethnicities. And we know that there are certain cultures that work pretty well when they are monocultural or monoethnic, right? If you look at South Korea, it's like 99 plus percent all the same uh, race and group and uh, seems to be working, you know, pretty well. I mean, one of the lowest crime rates uh, in the world, for especially for the big cities. And so there is, there is frustration. Everybody's frustrated. And at some point, people are either going to have to have an honest conversation or there's going to be conflict. And um, I'm, of course, hoping my very, uh, to the very depths of my soul that conflict can be avoided. But yeah, people are getting uh, pretty goddamn sick of all of this stuff. Whenever you bring up anything that's not politically correct, you're simply called a racist and you're attacked and people will try and get you fired and people will attack the source of your income. And it's like, okay, okay, so we're not allowed to have this conversation. Okay. So if we're not allowed to have this conversation, does that mean basic reality is suspended? It does not. You know, you, you don't have to have conversations about how to pay off the national debt or what needs to, it doesn't mean that the numbers are going to change. It just means that instead of flying with um, radar and a compass, you're now just flying with duct tape over your window and uh, four ounces of <laughs> scotch in your chest. Did I put her to sleep? No, Hello? I was just okay. To yeah, sure look, we, we have honest conversations about gender and race, and we get lots of um, different races calling in. Women are calling in because 
here's a place where we can talk uh, without, I think, people getting hysterical about basic information. But sorry, go ahead. Right. Well, I, I definitely don't disagree with anything that you said, and I'm not for hiding things just for people's feelings, even though maybe in my personal life, I won't throw that at somebody um, because I'm, I'm just a woman. I think that's a womanly thing to not want to hurt somebody's feelings. That's your personal friend or relation or whatever. Well, no, hang on, hang on, hang on. (laughs) Because that creates this false dichotomy that women don't want to hurt people's feelings, but men do. Come on. If if I tell if I if I say to someone who thinks they're a great singer that they sound terrible, well, am I doing them a favor? Uh, no, it's it's not about that either. I'm not saying that my my approach to that would necessarily be right and yours would be wrong. But the you know on um what was that singing show to use your example where you had the British guy who was always a jerk. American Idol. Right? Yeah, right, right. Simon right. Cowell. Yeah, right. He's, I'm honoring he's, one he's of his t-shirts today. Oh, jeez. I never really watched it, but I know that he was infamous for saying the tough thing, you know, that, and there would be a yeah, William, there. William Hung comes on they're, they're, and he, they're, they're, William Hung comes on and does this, like, I don't know, retarded version of She Bangs. And they're like, dog, you're terrible. Right. <laughs> you can't no, sing, I, you can't dance, right. you know, like, of, don't do it. Of course he's right. But you still see that, that dichotomy right there in the panel. Cause then it goes right to the woman, whatever, whoever it was at the time who would then be like, well, you know, and we all know that she's thinking, yes, Simon, everything you said is completely true, but I'm going to softball it. So I think it's, yes, a, but, it's but, a fair, but it's not Diane, kind that she does. But yes, but, but I think it's but, but it's not kind. It's not kind. I oh, I, I don't want to hurt people's feelings. No, you need to tell people the truth about what their abilities are. I, I didn't. It's, it, you, you, what you, you could reframe that as that I really like to waste people's time by encouraging them to do things they're bad at. Well, you you don't have to. You know, like for to go back full circle now to, you know, the original reason that I called the the young girl who's my friend instead of saying, you know, maybe you're just not smart enough to pass nursing school, which maybe somebody who cared about her more maybe would have said that, you know, if you want to put it that way. Um, you know, maybe I really don't care about doing her a favor because I can't tell her the truth, which probably is that she's just not smart enough or there's some kind of work ethic issue or whatever. You know, I just tried to encourage her not to go to school for a while and to just work a real job and to try to figure out what it is she wanted to do and, you know, kind of find her own way without taking more financial risks. You know, so I maybe did not do the right thing. I'm not trying to say that's what it was. I was only saying I feel anyway in my personal experience, women are far more likely to sugarcoat it or divert your attention than say the painfully truth blunt thing, which is oftentimes you're correct, better to do. I wasn't saying it was better to do it the way. That's why there are not a lot of female football coaches. You suck. I mean, they're just not going to, they're not going to be as blunt as, as people need. It's, it's not that I was saying that this is a bad thing that men do that. I just, I think that there is a pretty clear gender difference there for the most part that women are more than likely not going to be brutal to you, even if that's what you need to hear some of the time. And obviously some women will, obviously I will sometimes, but a lot of the time with just some of my personal acquaintances who aren't my family, you know, I might hesitate with how, how truthful I get with them. And that's, you know, maybe a personal flaw. The- no, no, but see, Diane, and, and you'll hear this when you, I hope you'll listen back to this. And I, I mean this with all positivity and affection. But the way you phrase it, I choose not to be brutal. 
or I, I don't want to be brutal. See, again, that's brutal, right? Arr, right? And, you know, earlier when you said, I, you know, I just I don't want to hurt people's feelings. The way that you frame it for yourself is that it's nice to do what you do. And it's not nice. It's brutal to do what men do. And I'm, I'm not criticizing. I'm just pointing that we talked about female in-group preference. And naturally, you're going to frame what you do as a woman in a more positive light than what men do as men. You know, if we're going to take this big dichotomy of like women will spoonful of sugar kind of stuff, whereas men are more, as you say, brutal and willing to hurt people's feelings and so on. But you have a way of describing this behavior that is positive towards women and negative towards men. And I'm not criticizing. I'm just pointing this out. It's it's quite uh, natural, right? Like if I were to say, well, women are, are cowardly, manipulative, and men just tell the truth, right? You would experience that as, well, wait a minute. <laughs> That seems a bit one-sided way to describe it, no, right? Actually, and if you say, well, men are brutal and like to hurt people's feelings, and I don't like to hurt people's feelings, and I like to be tactful and diplomatic, that's another way of, of putting it that is, you know, not not terribly nuanced. I, I, I understand what you're saying, but it probably isn't true, actually. I do believe that, that women are cowardly and manipulative, and this is why we're not very good at moving society forward and innovating and going to war and doing all these other things. So, you know, maybe I phrased it in a way that was, you know, more kind to me and, you know, gave that impression or to women, I guess, in general. But it's, it was the whole, ultimately, the whole reason why I was calling is not necessarily that the issue is, is hurt feelings, though in my personal, personal life, that influences my decisions. But in this overall umbrella of the question is not that it's hard for people to hear these truths about themselves. But I actually am concerned that it doesn't it doesn't necessarily help them a lot of the time and it gives other people um some fuel to to actually discriminate and to try to broad brush and to you know push people out um without giving individuals a chance that's where the you know part of my question about it being helpful or divisive you know are we oh okay going so like use if, it sorry as, to interrupt so I think I understand. So you're saying that if I say, well, you know, Chinese people tend to be short, then people who run NBA teams are never going to audition Chinese people? Um, I, I guess if you want to use that example, it, you know, that's that's fair. And it sounds ridiculous when you put it in those terms, but the... No, no, look, this, this are, these are very real, real questions and real issues. Real questions and real issues. So no, it, it's not ridiculous at all. It's not ridiculous at all. Like, so people say with Jews that they have an in-group preference. I, I, I think there's probably some truth in that. You know, not for all. And I think a third of Jews are now marrying outside the faith and so on. Or outside the whatever <laughs> we want to call Judaism. But um, so is that just some irrational in-group preference? Or does someone, say, who wants to hire a writer, see a Jewish name and say, okay, well, on average, Jews are fantastic with language skills, so... I'm going to bring this person in, right? Whereas if they see someone, I don't know, from uh, who's uh, maybe they see, they know this person is um, somebody from the outback uh, Aboriginal tribes of, of Australia, which is, you know, some of the lowest recorded IQs on earth. If they can only, only have time to interview one person, who are they going to choose, right? These are big questions. If you are, if you have a job that, that you want to hire someone for, and that job is really mission critical, and, and you know, you, you, that you can't, outsource it you can't delegate the responsibilities whatever it is it's like absolutely essential they be available and and work hard and 
One is a, a young man who's unmarried, and another is a woman who's 28 and has been married for three years and uh, talks about wanting children. Well, who would you be more likely to give the nod to? The, the man. Yeah, and it's not uh, sexism. Um, if, you know, it's just, you know, if, if, uh, if it was a man who was 28 years old and who had been married for two years or three years and said, I want to have kids and I really want to stay home with the kids. And there was some young woman, uh, who was gung ho and unmarried, then you would probably want to give the job to the young woman, right? Because, right. you know, it's not, it's just availability, right? Availability. Well, it, obviously we all have to exercise some level of discrimination, you know, because it is, it's a very heated word and nobody likes to hear it. But, you know, that's, that's more or less what you're doing is you're saying, okay, I'm, you know, going to take in these factors or this likelihood or this impression and I'm going to, you know, make the best decision that I possibly can for my interest, you know, as a company or whatever, and as a country. And that's not a bad thing. It's just in, in the way that it's being and starting to be discussed, you know, much in part because it has been repressed for so long and hidden for so long. And it's been hidden so that white men specifically can just take the hit for everything and the wealthy can take the hit for everything. You know, we've created an environment that I worry these things are not going to be used for healthy discrimination, you know, which is, you know, pro-capitalism and letting things happen naturally. I think it's going to turn into real uh, discrimination in, in the negative way. That's, you know, where, where I've been having this issue. But I, real I, discrimination in an, you mean pre prejudging groups based upon general characteristics? Yes. And on a, a more extreme scale, you know, not like just saying, oh, well, you know, the likelihood is that, you know, this person with an Asian name is probably someone I should interview first for this engineering job or, you know, whatever it is, then this, you know, person with a, you know, Mexican last name, I don't know. You know, yeah, they yeah. might be like, oh, I want to, I would like to see, you know, the Asian first, you know, maybe it goes great, maybe it doesn't. And then, you know, maybe I'll see the, you know, the other person after that, if I'm not happy with the, the first one, like those are all things that are unavoidable and they help move things forward a lot of the time, because sometimes you have to base decisions off of the broad trends, you know, because yes, but, but, factors. But, but Diane, you have to trust the free market on this. So let's say well, the Asian guy is not a very, hang on, right hang on. <laughs> let, let, no, but we have an aim towards a free market, right? I mean, because if these things can't be solved in a state of freedom, they can't be solved at all, because sure as hell government coercion is going to solve them, right? So let's say that the Asian guy is not a very good engineer, but the Mexican guy is a fantastic engineer. Well, then the, per the person who's going to hire the Asian guy is making a bad decision relative to the value of the Mexican guy. And so over time, people who make bad decisions when it comes to hiring, well, their businesses tend to go out of business, which is why I put so much time and effort into hiring people and, and interviewing them and giving them tests and all that when I was uh, in charge of uh, the software arm of a software company. So if, if, if there's good reasons for the Mexican to go be hired, then whoever won't hire him is going to be losing out a wonderful, productive, and amazing, and cool employee. 
who's going to raise the standard of everyone. Like a really great employee will raise the standard of people around him. You're not just hiring one person to sit in a cubicle. You're hiring a ripple effect because other people become competitive and want to do better. And he raises everyone's game. Whereas at the same time, if you hire someone who brings everyone down, it's not just that person that productivity is a problem. They bring everybody's productivity down because everyone kind of slows down and everyone gets resentful and all this kind of stuff, right? So just trust the free market. If, if there's good reasons to hire one person over another, you know, the, the only color that matters to the, to the market is green in the long run. And so uh, I say just trust just the free market is going to get done what needs to get done. Um, I would love to see people hire more minorities, but you have to make it easier to fire minorities if you want people to hire them. Otherwise, they're going to try and avoid it because if the minority, minority doesn't work out, they don't want to end up with some discrimination lawsuit, right? I mean, we see this in France, not about minorities, but just about workers as a whole. People hate hiring workers in France because it's almost impossible to fire them. And so, you know, if, if some basketball team, let's say there was some crazy prejudiced basketball team owner, <laughs> I guess we'll, we've seen that before, um, say, well, we're never going to have a Chinese person on this team. Okay, well, Yao Ming will go to the competitor's team and will kick their ass, right? Right. No, I, I agree with everything you said. It's just, I guess there's nothing can be done about it. If you want the truth to be out there, you kind of just have to let it fall where it does. And I do. I just, I hope it, it turns to productivity in the way that the free market should operate. It just seems like we all have been running the government so long, we've, you know, forgotten, I guess. Yeah, we, we still want to manipulate the outcome so people's feelings don't get hurt. I, I understand all of that, and that is a wonderful um a wonderful and sensitive approach and a girly approach, which, you know, I'm not, again, not criticizing. I'm just pointing out, you, you know, should. I was always it's, told when I was a not, kid. It's not better. No, it's, it's, it's fine. There's, there's lovely things about it. There's lovely things about it. You know, there's this old Charlie Brown cartoon, I guess, Peanuts cartoon, um, where I think it was Linus was able to predict what Charlie Brown's grandmother was going to say. And he said, okay, Charlie Brown and Sally each take a picture to your grandmother. I'm going to predict she's going to and ask which is better. And your grandmother's going to say, I think they're both very nice. <laughs> right? And, and, and say, well, why is it? Go to your grandmother and say, well, there's a Mother's Day, there's a Father's Day. Why isn't there a Children's Day? And your grandmother will say, because every day is Children's Day. Right? <laughs> so, you know, it's, it's nice. It's nice stuff. And, and it's a hugely wonderful part of society that women as a whole bring, this sensitivity, this caring, uh, this nurturing. It's beautiful stuff. It's beautiful stuff. And, um, you know, the bluntness and, and uh, uh, time-saving element of uh, honesty that men bring is also very, very important to society. You, you know, men and women are a yin and a yang. We both bring essential things, but we need to respect what the other gender brings to the table as a whole. And uh, if, if we don't, then society gets really out of balance. And, you know, what's happened is female sensibilities have just completely dominated Western civilization for the past 30 or 40 years, maybe even 50. Uh, female sensibilities, female sensitivity, female niceness, uh, a female um, take care of everyone and nobody can uh, suffer negative consequences and all of that. That That is just completely, you know, we've all crawled up the skirts of the eternal goddess mother. Uh, and uh, I think this is one of the reasons why societies in the West are just so way out of balance is the male perspective of we tell the truth though the skies fall. This is what I was taught. This is what I was taught when I was a kid. And maybe this is why I do what I do. I don't know. But I just remember this. You know, you suck it up and tell the truth. Tell the truth, though you get punished. Tell the truth, though you get caned. Tell the truth. 
Though the skies fall, we tell the truth. And that does not seem to be around as much anymore. Now, everyone gets a trophy. Everyone's supposed to have good self-esteem. Everyone's supposed to feel proud. Everyone's picture is great. Everyone's doing wonderfully. Everyone's excellent. Right. <laughs> it's like, well. nope. How on earth are we supposed to figure out where we're supposed to apply our limited time and skills and resources if everyone's told that everything they do is great? Right. Can't figure it out. Well, hopefully it's not too late for men to save modern society. I mean that seriously not. Time will tell. <laughs> time will tell. We're doing our best, but time will tell. Thanks All right, Dan, I'm going to move on to the next caller, but you're welcome back anytime. Thank you so much for uh, a great, great conversation. Have a nice day. All right, up next is Amy. Amy wrote in and said, Many people noting the West's seeming unwillingness to defend their traditional nations believe the issue stems from pathological altruism. Yet the anonymous conservative website, anonymous conservative friend of the show, by the way, uh, which details RK behavior theories, clearly details our related behavior as related to narcissism. Do you think it's possible that the current consensus is incorrect? And what we're struggling with is narcissism at the level of general society. That is from Amy. Oh, Amy. <laughs> First Amy in the show. Can Hello. I tell you, I had, a real, I, yes. I had a real crush on a girl named Amy when I was in uh, junior high school. Oh. <laughs> I even I came up with a song with her. Let me tell you. You ready? <laughs> Amy, Amy, give me the news. I got a bad case of loving you. Anyway. <laughs> hmm. <laughs> So, yeah, that was my, uh, I don't think I ever quite broke that on her, but uh, it was definitely there. So, um, how are you doing tonight, Amy? I'm doing great. How are you? I'm, I'm well, thank you. Yeah, anonymous conservative, uh, look him up, buy his book. Uh, he's uh, fantastic, or she, because, you know, yeah, anonymous knows? and all. <laughs> but, yeah, uh, it's, great. it's a great uh, website. So Yeah. How does he, uh, our, our related behavior is related to narcissism. If you can just. I, I vaguely remember it, but if you could bring me up to speed just a sure. smidge and a half, I'd um, appreciate it. He, he makes it more in the blog area, but um, the idea with the with the R – there's a lot of overlap between R-related behaviors and narcissistic ones to the point where – I mean he's got this whole section on his blog about narcissism. Um, but in the sense that R-related behaviors um, – I you know, if we kind of pull out the rabbit analogy, you know, if you're a rabbit and you have all of these resources and you never need to worry about food or, or anything real, then um, what narcissism does is their coping strategy is sort of essentially to sort of change reality on themselves, right? They're they're um, not stimulating. Uh, it's the amygdala, amygdala, right? Did I get that right? But they're not stimulating that part of their brain that would remember bad, um, you know, bad experiences. Um, so in narcissism, there's this huge overlap because, jeez, uh, oh, I apologize, I'm a little tired here tonight. Um, but, you know, in our related behavior, they don't really worry about reality too much. You know, you things just show up in their lives. So why not just keep, pushing reality away and narcissism has that element mm. to it of of saying i don't really need to deal with this reality because it's uncomfortable um yeah it, it also struck me with regards to the narcissism amy that um because of the 
need to invest in your children from K-selected species. And sorry for those who don't know what the hell we're talking about. Just go to watch Gene Wars, G-E-N-E Wars at uh, youtube.com slash free domain radio and then come back. <laughs> so, so you know, the the, um, the polar bears, the, the wolves, the lions, all of the K-selected larger predatory species need to invest in their young and therefore have to make sacrifices and so on. Whereas the rabbits and the, the other are selected species, they don't really have to make that many sacrifices for their kids, and um, therefore they're just going to be uh, more more selfish and, and so on. Does that sort of make any sense? And also, also the, the the pack works together, right? The 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 wolf pack works together to to bring down the caribou or whatever they're hunting. Yep. And so they have to work together. They have to have, be sensitive to each other's needs. Whereas the rabbit just munching away on the grass, they've done these studies. You know, a hawk comes down and grabs a rabbit. Uh, and the other rabbits don't even look up. They don't care. Yeah. You know, it's just not me, right? Yeah. And it, and I, I have some uh, – hopefully the, the people in question won't, won't hear this. They probably wouldn't. But and I'll try to leave it as general as possible. I have some personal experience with narcissism. And um, it, it, thankfully it's not me personally, personally. But it's pretty obvious that narcissists tend – when they interact with their children, tend to either completely ignore them. Um, or there's this sense that they can sort of just emotionally eat away at them for all practical purposes. You know, they can turn, you know, mm. because a child is in a vulnerable position, you know. And so if, you know, they're trying to get rid of this reality, well, there's this child here who has real needs, but they can also be used to push away, you know, be helpful, um, so and and to me that's much more you know it all and it all ties in with that that sense of you know it doesn't matter if we import these refugees because you know they're kind of all children and they're all kind of the same like a narcissist doesn't have any direct connections to anybody but themselves so you know does it matter that i import somebody else's children to pay for my pension nah <laughs> you know, it doesn't matter. Um, right, because everyone outside the narcissist frame of reference is just this interchangeable bio blob of are they useful to me or not? Yes. Yes, okay. and that's okay. very much with, you know, kind of keeping with that R selection. You know, oh, well, you, you know, what's it to me, right? You know, that, that you know, somebody genetically related to me disappeared. Um, so, yeah, that's what I was wondering because, you know, I read, you know, I've, you know, read these you know, pathological altruism ideas. And I'm like, you know, it's not fitting, you know, because it's not, you know, <laughs> I guess when I think of people in government, I don't think of people who are just like, yeah, we'll just give away the store until it hurts. You know, that's not how they're operating or how they're viewing the world. So, you know, I, I kind of come back to this idea of, you know, maybe what we're struggling with is kind of like darker and much deeper, you know that it's a it's a like a critical mass of people who have disconnected from their reality because they're living in a in a society of abundance they can they can afford to disconnect you know in a in a very dramatic manner basically right right yeah and i i guess um it it takes real empathy to figure out who who's going to change and who's not going to change 
right? I mean, it's interesting to me that the people who tend to be the most selfish tend to be the less able to figure out which cultures are compatible with each other or not. Oh, yeah. So, sorry, um, Mike's just pointing out that uh, Anonymous Conservative has a whole book on it, which I'll have to check out. And it's entitled How to Deal with Narcissists, Why They Become Evil, How They Think, and Strategies and Techniques to Take Control. Yes. Although okay. I, he has some of it on his website. And like I said, it's, this is somewhat of a, a personal experience, but I'll, I'll skip to the end. You really have to, like, isolate yourself from them. I mean, I, to me, like, the hardest part. Hardest part is when I hear stories of children because they're just so vulnerable. And I mean, I think the good news is, is that a lot of children can become sturdy like that. You know, it it ends up being sort of a trial by fire, but, you know, obviously other children end up in suicide and, you know, just emotional wrecks, you know, for the rest of their lives. Because, you know, there's just, there's nothing normal about working in a narcissistic environment because, you know, these kids tend to be trapped in, and that's why I actually kind of, you know, with the millennials, I tend to relate a little bit because it's, I see, you know, having sort of seen some of this narcissism from the inside, what happens is you end up in sort of really terrible, crappy emotional situations, but you can't really put your finger on it because they're, they're geniuses, you know, at, at making situations seem okay. And to the outside, you know, and they're also very focused on their image. So what comes first in any situation is how this looks to some random stranger. I mean, it's fascinating the idea that, you know, the person, you know, the person that theoretically will take care of them in their old age is totally irrelevant in, in how they act in the world. It's, you know, their next door neighbor who they'll move away from in a year from now is who, who counts. Right. Um, and so, and I see when I when I hear millennials, I kind of you know so, at least some of them you know thankfully you know not everybody wandering around is a narcissist, and that's important to say that. But you know I'm hearing a critical mass of of kids who are like not getting haven't been getting listened to, but everybody is is supposed to be okay, right? This sort of trying to hold this in your head, you know, that everybody thinks you, you're having a great life when you're not, and you can't even really articulate it because it almost sounds crazy. Um, I don't know. I guess it's, uh, it's kind of where I am with, with, you know, some of these kids with the alt-right, but, um, yeah, yeah, and the other thing I had thought of when, you know, we're talking about, you know, pathological altruism versus narcissism is, you know, you'll see in the alt-right a, 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 lot, a lot of lengthy discussions about virtue signaling, and <clears throat> to me, that's another, you know, we all virtue signal you know, I'm a good person by how I act or, you know, in minor normal human ways, right? How sometimes how we dress is, you know, that's virtual signaling. But for a narcissist, virtual signaling is like a must. Like it's, it's absolutely part of their world in a way that isn't for the average, you know, just, you know, more, more average, uh, personality. Um, and I see that and again, I, I make that connection. I'm thinking, you know, we've got a bunch of people on the right, on the right and the left, who are sitting here going, "Hey, look, I'm not a racist. Hey, great news, I'm not a racist either." You know, well, that's how narcissists interact with each other when you take them to an extreme, right? They're not really viewing; they have no connections to each other, except for, 
you know, trying to impress the stranger with just how awesome they are. Um, and that's why I keep like coming back to this idea that we, we can't really be a pathological altruism. It's not, it's not fitting with a lot of other observations that people are seeing, you know, out there. Right. Well, let me, you know, just to remind everyone, I mean, I'm certainly not a psychologist, so we're just using these terms in an amateur fashion, but off wiki, right? So let's just look at the first sentence, right? Narcissistic personality disorder is a long-term pattern of abnormal behavior characterized by exaggerated feelings of self-importance, an excessive need for admiration, and a lack of understanding of others' feelings. All right. Now let's look at your average politician who's um, trying to do some some trying to get some big plan. Let's say a Swedish politician or whatever, right? Exaggerated feelings of self-importance. Okay. Well, isn't this only only we can save the migrants? Yeah. Yep. You know, helping them over there, which would be twelve or thirteen times more helpful. Well. No, no, they have to come here. Only we can help them. Only we can save them. Only I can save them, right? Yep. An excessive need for admiration. I have saved all of these people. I am not a racist. I am inclusive. I am for diversity. Right? Yep. A lack of understanding of others' feelings. A lack of understanding of what it's like to be a young man from the Middle East who leaves his country leaves his culture, leaves his language, leaves his religion to some degree. I mean, it brings a lot of that with him and so on. What is it going to be like for that person in the West? No language skills, no job skills, no sexual market value in particular. What's it, how's it going to work? What's right? So to me, the narcissism is pretty important uh, for, for this kind of stuff. Um, lack of understanding of others' feelings. Angela Merkel uh, didn't her party just suffer the biggest setback in German politics and modern German politics just recently? Oh, yeah. Yes, I mean. Right. Lack of understanding of how the Germans are going to feel about what she's done. Oh, yeah. I mean, yeah. I mean, it's 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 amazing how many politicians don't seem to even have insight to their voters. I mean, how, you know, I, I was, uh, there was a tweet I had read, how dangerous of Twitter, but, you know, where somebody was like, you know, I built a vote for Bill Clinton over Hillary Clinton. And it basically, the reasoning was was he's basically an old-fashioned political hack who at least gets, you know, gets what his voters want. You know, even if he has no particular principles, he you know is at least conforming to that. Where Hillary Clinton, you know, who is she talking? I mean, she's not really talking to anybody except for maybe the people in the donor class. You know, that are her donors. Right. I mean, because there's nothing compelling. I mean, I can't imagine anything that is compelling if you're really black. I mean, maybe if you're, a, a, you know, a young black woman at college, maybe. But that's not all of the voters. That's not all of the black community in America. It's right. it's very strange. I mean, it's very strange to kind of live in this political era where the politicians themselves aren't even showing any insight into their constituency. You know, you kind of understand the other, not understanding that, but. And the, the fragility of this sort of vanity, to me, is what makes uh, these kinds of people, it's impossible to criticize them. Oh, yes. Yes. Right. And certainly, as far as I understand it, narcissists are not good candidates for talk therapy. By the way, I'm a big fan of talk therapy. Just to remind everyone. <laughs> narcissists are not, not a big fan of talk therapy. Uh, they're, not big, they're not good candidates for talk therapy because 
they already think they're perfect. Yeah, <laughs> they're yeah pretty to, much. They don't have any problem, they, right? They, they already ex- – every problem is external. Someone problem. else's fault, right? Yeah, somebody else's fault. So um, – and really what's – What's vital is hanging on to that that sense of self. It's not a real sense of self. It's just an image that they have created, and so it's critical that that image is much more critical than you know talk therapy or you know. And I've I, I read it was either it was a book about borderline personality disorder, which is awfully close to narcissism. Um, but I think between the two, <clears throat> they they suck up a tremendous amount of long-term mental health resources because if you can get them to go, they're almost always going for something else like depression or, you know, cause they're like quite often they're messing up their lives too. If they're not, uh, you know, if maybe they're not the brightest, <laughs> you know, they're, they're going to approach their lives in a, in a way that people are always angry at them and, you know, they're always messing up in social situations and things like that. So, um, you know, they'll use up, you know, they're always in the therapy, you know, and maybe getting medications and stuff like that, but nothing ever happens. They're just, they end up being... No, you know, if you've, this is, you know, we all have the, we all want the great relief of blaming other people for the messes that we make. Yes. And and it gives you temporary relief, but you lose control of your own life. Oh, yes. Yes, absolutely. And so let let me just mention something here as well. Um, This is again from, from Wikipedia. Tell me if you think this describes the left or the right people with narcissistic personality disorder may exhibit fragile egos an inability to tolerate criticism and a tendency to belittle others in an attempt to validate their own superiority <laughs> hmm. I don't, it's mostly, hmm. this is the one, one little it's not that little I, I it's mostly the left by the way but i will say the narcissists i know they vote republican they're kind of they're narcissists. I mean, the point that's the important thing about narcissism is that it really, it's like a chameleon. It it'll bend with people's personalities, right? Um, and that's why it's so hard to spot. It's not it's not this set of ones it, 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 with enough experience, like like the anonymous conservative has. You can start to to pull out traits, specific traits, but it's not it's not always somebody on the left who's going to have that. It's just much more likely. <laughs> I mean, just you know, in terms of no, how of course. Look, offer, you know, you know we're, how we're, they Amy, operate. We're smart enough to not do false dichotomy, planet, right? Yeah, yeah. Exactly. The tendency is this. Well, not everyone. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, we got it. We got yeah. it. Got it. Um, now, let me let me make a bit of a case here, though, because I think that you may have a false dichotomy. Since we're on the topic, you may have a false dichotomy with regards to narcissism versus pathological altruism. What if they're not that dissimilar? What if they're not? So pathological altruism is where you want to help others to the point of self-destruction. What well, not that an inability to handle negative feedback? In other words, if you're not out there selling, like breaking up your spine into tiny pieces to, to help other people, then you either experience a huge amount of self-criticism or you feel that you're opening yourself up to criticism for others. Pathological altruism is, um, again, it's just my understanding of the term, but pathological altruism is where you, 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 you're not giving honest feedback to yourself or to others. You are uh, enabling others' uh, laziness or bad behavior or exploitation of you rather than having needs of your own. So you're doing lots of negative things 
And why? Wouldn't it have to do with an inability to handle negative feedback? In other words, if you have been enabling somebody's bad behavior, I mean, I'm guessing it's something like, uh, you know, like uh, calling in sick for your husband who's actually got a hangover and getting drinks for him and picking up his uh, picking him up off the floor and like all this kind of stuff. If you have trained people in a sense in your life to treat you that way, to, to, to view you as just an all available resource no matter what. Then if you try and pull back on that behavior, if you try to be more assertive and say, no, I don't want to do this. No, I'm not comfortable with that. Then aren't you opening yourself up to significant amounts of attack now or, or criticism? And the avoidance of criticism is to me maybe common between narcissism and pathological altruism. That you don't have an ego strength strong enough to experience significantly negative feedback without self-attacking. I, I would tend to call it maybe a sub behavior of narcissism. I mean, the problem with narcissism is that it's really, and, and he has some very strong words for it on, on his blog, you know, on service does it's, it's a very self-centered thing. Um, and it's hard, you know, in the end, the people who are giving away resources are not actually giving away their own resources. Which to, you mean in politics? In politics, right? I mean, if oh, we yeah, thought, yeah, you know, yeah. you know, Merkel is giving away other people's future. I mean, she's going to be fine. You know, whatever happens to her, oh, yeah. you know, yeah, she'll be she, she's going she's be, got no kids anyway. So. She'll be fine. So, in the sense that it's not actually affecting her, I have a hard time calling it pathological altruism. Although I'd have to concede that it's possible that narcissism could bend that way. You know, it could be. It's just. It's not, I, I don't know, it's just usually though that, you know, narcissists tend to view other people as objects, so. Right, and the voters are objects. Yeah. And, no, and I, even yeah, though yeah. the migrants are yeah. objects to serve her yep. preferences, her pleasure, her yep. ego, I would guess. She needs to be admired. Oh, yeah. She needs to be admired. Look what's happening to the Eastern European politicians who are saying no to the migrants. Well, you know, the, the media, at least the European media, is taking a long, slow, har horrible dump all over them. Oh, yeah. Right. So they, they obviously have maybe had a bitter experience, but they have the ego strength to say, well, no, I'm not going to do this. My people don't want it. I don't see how it's going to work. I've seen it not work in Eastern Europe. They have more direct experience. So um, so they're able to say, no, I'm not going to do this thing that would be enormously popular. I'm not because narcissists eventually, I think, are pretty much controlled by praise, uh, praise or attack, praise or, or blame. Oh, yes. And I mean, so I think that she's um, virtue signaling. Virtue signaling is, of course, when you wish to do something in order to be perceived as good, not because it actually is good. Yes. You want praise from people. And, and that makes you a slave to people's oh, yes. praise. Because there's lots of things that people praise that are not praiseworthy and lots of things that they attack that are praiseworthy. And so you end up uh, really picking who your circle is if you're virtue signaling because you can't usually have it both ways, right? So... Um, I think that there are some it, pretty self-centered uh, elements about that. Yeah, and, and in my personal experience with narcissism, at least, um, you, you know, the, the you know the, the the specific people I'm thinking about, it's a little, it's almost to the point of of comedy that you know I'll uh, what interactions I do have with them, I'll say, you know, I, I try to limit them, but um, you know, I'll say I'm doing this X thing, and it comes out that they're like, oh, well, we need to do this X thing. Because I was doing it. Like they have to, there's like, there's always a pack and they always have to fit in to that group. And yeah, you become a slave. I mean, 
you know, I am sure that the, the, the people that I know, they have no idea what to make of me. I mean, just, <laughs> you know, just like, well, you know, especially when you come on this show. <laughs> Um, you know, no, and, and I think we've all experienced that. Like when I was a, a, a teenager, I had a, a group of friends who liked to drink. And for about two, maybe three weekends, I tried it. <laughs> I really, I really, you know, it's like, according to the commercials, <laughs> this is just a huge amount of fun. And uh, I, I tried it. I really did. And uh, I I didn't like it. You know, it's I, I just I didn't like it. I would get... I would get. I would never sort of get this abandonment of ego. I don't know. Some people drink to escape themselves. I'd still be myself. I'd just be uncoordinated and and dizzy, and and think that I was funnier than I was. And then I'd go to bed. And what's that old Dean Martin joke? You're not drunk if you can lie on the floor without holding on. Uh, but I'd be in the bed. I'd get the spins, and I wouldn't be able to sleep, and it would be really uncomfortable. And then I'd wake up sort of mid morning. Uh, or late morning, and I'd have a headache, and I'd feel like no energy, wouldn't want to eat, wouldn't want to get off the couch all Sunday. And it's like, okay, so there's not really any pluses, but there sure are a lot of minuses <laughs> to uh, to drinking. And then the one time I threw up when I was drinking, I was like, okay, well, I think <laughs> if it mimics an illness, why pay for it? Yeah. Um, so, <laughs> so I had a, um, you know, but I had friends, and they wanted to go and drink. And... Um, a lot of their life was figuring out where to drink and, and how to get the drinks and, and never really how much to drink. The answer seemed to be until there's nothing left to drink. And, you know, they would sometimes congregate in parents' basements and they'd go through, you know, the, I don't know if this is old school 70s stuff or 80s stuff, but, you know, people used to have these, these basements with these bars and they'd have all these like multicolored liqueurs and, and crap, which hadn't been opened since, I don't know, World War II. <laughs> yeah. And um, for like wedding gifts. <laughs> yeah, you know, it's just something. It's like, wow, this is really, really green. I wonder if we can drink it. And then you'd, you'd mix and match, and then it would just be like, wow, <laughs> this is. I, I'm now in the process of turning myself inside out because I have had too many liqueurs. So now I'm an alcoholic with diabetes. So <laughs> I just didn't. I just I couldn't get into the drinking thing. And I guess the last time I was drunk was probably at an aftercast party for a play I was in when I was like maybe 20 or 21. Um, and that's just because it was a savage punch. And I was, you know, every now and then you're having a good conversation with someone. You don't really notice how much you're eating or, hey, where did all the chips go? But um, so I just, I never quite got into the drinking thing, but my friends sure did. And man, they dug in, they committed, you know, like John Oliver says uh, uh, on the, the, um, the bugle, you know, you got to commit, you got to commit to your bit. And boy, did they ever commit to the drinking. It was like absolutely unquestioned that it was the very best possible thing to do. And, you know, if you were going to drink, then you had to have the right tunage. Tunage was the word that was really annoying. Even at the time, you had to have the right music. And you also had to have a small amount of, of, of coins so that you could play poker for nickels and, and pennies and all that kind of stuff. And it just was, that was the thing to do. And man, if you weren't drinking, what were you doing? Why would you bother getting together without drinking? So basically, human beings were props by which you could say, well, at least I'm not drinking alone. <laughs> that, seemed to be, that seemed to be the whole deal. And so again, I tried it a couple of weekends and I was like, wow, high price to pay. And uh, I, you know, why would I pay for something that I would pay to be cured off? And so I just didn't want to drink anymore. And then what happened, of course, was like, suddenly I just became the enemy. <laughs> like, wow. <laughs> 
somebody making sensible life decisions, attack, <laughs> right? And it just it got really stupid. And so I just had to stop hanging out with those people because it's expensive. And I didn't have much money at the time. I was working like three jobs. And um, it was expensive. It was alienating. I was sick. I was unwell. It's just like, why? What, what, what possible benefit is there in this for me? Uh, other than not being attacked by my friends for being a sucky fag who won't drink. Actually, I don't think they ever used that phrase, but it, you know, probably wasn't that far off. What's the matter, man? Have a drink. Come on. <laughs> um, so yeah, I mean, if, if I'm not interested in drinking and you know, maybe they had some big biological response to drinking that it was like, you know, four orgasms a second. I don't know. Maybe it was something vastly different for them than it was for me. But to me, if it, if every, you know, what's that old joke? There's no great story that ever started off with, I had a good salad, you know, <laughs> but there are lots of, if it became like um, the stories, and it's not just the drinking, like the stories were then about the drinking, and then the stories were about the falling down, and the stories about the crazy things you did with a garden gnome, and then the stories were, I was so hungover that, and the stories were, hey, remember that time when I fell asleep and somebody tried to take the beer out of my hand, and I woke up immediately and grabbed it back and finished the rest of it and fell asleep again, la la la. Right, you became this this drink based or beer based life form that uh, that was your sole reason for being and your sole value to society was the endless consumption of uh, barley, wheat, hops, and bubbles. So, um, yeah, and it just you know, especially you know, if it's beer, I just I cannot spend the entire evening either peeing or needing to pee. That is just not my definition of a good time. So sorry for the long story, Amy, but I get how there are all of these areas in which it's like, oh, this group needs to do X. And um, it was the same thing, too. Like, I played Dungeons & Dragons until I got a girlfriend. And then the Dungeons & Dragons crew were not quite as keen on me. No. Because, <laughs> no, no, um, no. <laughs> I, had a, I had a lady nearby that I didn't have to draw with zero gravity boobs. Anyway, so, um, there, there, yeah, there are tribes yeah. that trap you, I guess. Yeah, it's, and it's not, you know, it, wanting to fit in is, like, not... It's like abnormal. I mean, again, if we're talking about narcissism, you know, it's like, you know, up a notch, right? I mean, just crazy things like, you know, I just had back surgery, but I'm going to go for a hike because my daughter did, you know, that kind of uh, <laughs> level of I have to fit in this that is even beyond like, you know, just sort of the normal young yeah, kind of I mean, thing? we, we yeah. all have to fit in because people who didn't fit in didn't get to pass along those genes. Yeah, no, so, yeah. yeah, I mean, there's, yeah, there's I mean, a that's normal, natural yeah, there's to this me. normal level, but yeah, but they'll get super, you know, just, you know, just it, it's, it's almost difficult to imagine not trying. To yeah, I mean, and it tends to be around controlling other people's behavior yep. through intimidation and threats and, and punishments and all of that kind of stuff where you... Like I remember, I don't know, a couple of years later running into the same drinking crew and they were doing the same uh, stuff that they were doing before. But, you know, they still had to remind me that I was still a loser for not <laughs> coming out <laughs> and, not, you know, you know sacrificing. Your paycheck to feel ill every weekend. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, and it's like, you know, uh, retaining the kind of brain cells that have me have a show like this rather than the show like I like elves. So, um no, it's it is this this wanting to fit in is is perfectly natural, perfectly healthy, and perfectly normal. But you want to try and fit in with people who, you know, who think, who are coherent, who are you yeah. know. And it's, again, and, and like nothing the, wrong with a drink once in a while, but uh, it is uh, 
the, the self erasure that's necessary to fit in with drinking culture is really, really horrible. Yeah. Uh, you basically have to strip yourself down to like one one gene past an ape, uh, <laughs> the lowest possible common denominator. And there seems to be a sort of race as in, you know, oh, you call that a bad decision. Boy, I'll give you a bad decision I made when I was drinking. Look, check out this tattoo and this STD. Boy, you think you made mistakes. Boy, have I ever yeah, – how is great. this the hierarchy that you want to win at? Yeah, great stories, huh? You know. Good times. But, Can't uh, remember them. And I lost a tooth. And uh, But good times. I but, got something in – got something metallic circling something uncomfortable. <laughs> good times. Oh, no. But – you know, I'll pull. You know, kind of to pull this back. Oh, in. wait! One last thing. <laughs> I'm sorry to interrupt. One last thing. Just while it's, I'll never get to tell these stories again because there'll be no circumstance in this show where this makes sense. But have you ever had this? I don't know if you've ever been around a drinking crew. But if you ever want to see panic in a drinking crew, they get to some place remote. Like let's say they go into a cottage. Now near a cottage up in Canada here, a cottage is like three hours from town or whatever. Right. Yep. Get to a cottage. Went up once with a group. Got to the cottage, and they they were always suspicious of me because they're like, yeah, you're the kind of guy who's like, everyone's sitting on the dock and relaxing, and they're having a beer, and you know they're full of pizza, and someone comes up and says, hey, guys, let's play Pictionary. And I'm like, don't be that guy. Don't be that guy. <laughs> but anyway, so we got up to this, this uh, cottage, and uh, it was going to be a long weekend, and everybody's unpacking, but there's this growing sense of unease. And I don't just mean because you're running back and forth because you're getting dive-bombed by these mosquitoes the size of stukas that will basically suck out your armpit through your nose if they get attached to you. But um, it was uh, there was this sense of unease. It's like one guy was like, we were all in there, and one guy turns to the other and says, do you unpack the whole car, man? Is, is the whole car unpacked? Is the whole car unpacked? Yeah, the whole car is unpacked. No, 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 can't be. Go, go check the car. Make sure that make, – just check that everything's – it's got to be something else in the car. Guy runs out, <laughs> getting past the, you know, just you had to have naked people jumping up and down with honey attached to them just so they can pull off the mosquitoes. Guy comes back, no, no, man, everything's out. We got the fishing, we got the, everything's out. It's like, but where's the where's the beer? Where's the beer? <laughs> and then there was this silence, like, where's my child? <laughs> <laughs> Where's my youth? Where's my virtue? It was like literally we'd left someone behind <laughs> on battlefield. Where's Jake? Where's Jake? Jake would do anything for us. Where's Jake? Where's the beer? Somebody, like everyone thought that everybody else was bringing the beer. And somehow these people were facing a weekend with each other unmedicated. <laughs> we like without, al- without any alcohol. And, and then it was like, check, check the house. <laughs> check the house. You know, like somebody whose alarm goes off in the middle of the night and they think it's a true intruder. Check the house. There's got to be some beer here. There's got to – I don't care. Rubbing alcohol. I don't pledge. I don't care. Give me something to erase my brain from you people. And uh, yeah, it was just horrible. And um, the, the entire conversation that evening was people blaming each other for there being no alcohol. And then, of course, somebody took a two-hour drive to get some beer the next day. But it's like, where's the beer? <laughs> it's like, that was like – that was the last straw. It was like, Wow. Oh, no, we have to enjoy each other's company while sober. <gasps> God help us. Anyway, sorry about that. Go on. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> um, oh, okay, man. Okay. So uh, what I was thinking of, though, was that. In conclusion, you were right about everything. <laughs> what I was sorry. thinking was that, you know, part of that, 
it, what I would see like as a critical mass of, of narcissism, but especially in politics. I mean, politicians were already going to be like tend towards narcissism. Like that was just a given. But if they're growing the state for sure, yeah, yeah. If they're aiming at drinking it, not so much. Yeah, but um, so you know, part of that, you know, if we, you know, even tie into like globalism and nationalism, you know, a narcissist doesn't really have a hard time like throwing away his culture because you know he's trying to fit in. Like it doesn't. Nothing about the past would be of interest to hang on because. There's just so much energy expended into fitting in, and I, I've read, you know, writers who are like, you know, this is glo- there is a, you know, sort of a globalist culture of its own, you know, sort of centered around like international airports and, you know, has sort of its own code words and things like that. And if what you've got is sort of a critical mass of people trying to fit into that culture, you know, they're going to look around at the, you know, where they come from and go, what's the big deal? Why, why would you care? You know, that you're, you would be losing you know, this element of, you know, 2,000 years of tradition or even 50, right? Because you need to fit in. <laughs> well, and they would be addicted, right? I mean, I've talked yeah. about politics being an ex- intensely, a p- political power is an intensely addictive yes. uh, environment, system. Sus- uh, uh, climbing up the hierarchy gives you crazy addictive uh, uh, rewards, biofeedback. And so, yeah, somebody was asking me the other day, well, do you really think that the politicians would destroy the culture and and like would they it's like they're addicts oh yes yes they're addicts again i gotta put in this you know star donald trump you know whatever right but but in europe i mean for the most part i think the ones in power they're addicts yeah yeah and and you know do, do gambling addicts destroy their families do they destroy their savings do they destroy their lives of course they do oh yeah on a regular basis not all of them but a significant proportion of them do alcoholics you know do they destroy their lives do they destroy right yeah yeah, it's just Edward Albee just died, and the guy was a terrible alcoholic uh, through, through for periods of his life. And I think the same thing was true of Eugene O'Neill and and uh, Richard Burton. I think died of alcoholism. I mean, yeah, they destroy their own lives. What's to stop them from destroying other people's lives or oh, yes. the entire culture they've inherited? If they're addicts, uh, they're addicts. Reason holds no sway. <laughs> no, it doesn't. <laughs> well, that's the other thing with narcissism too is that, you know, I mean, you've when you've landed in a narcissist world, you've lived in the twilight. You, you know, you've landed in the twilight zone. You know, there's <laughs> there's no. Well, you you can't you can't fundamentally. In my experience has been that yeah. self-absorbed people or crazy people. You you can't have any existence around them. To exist is to offend. Oh yes, yes. You have to you have to be like the shadow cast by their desires. They move, you move. Yeah. You have to mirror what they're doing. You have to subjugate any individuality, any any individuation, any disagreement, um, because uh, they simply have no particular tolerance for not getting their way. You know, it's the tantrum phase of life, which you know, I my daughter didn't go through, but that aspect of things is really the most soul crushing thing is that you simply can't exist. You have to become a ghost of convenience for their particularly manic preferences. And you have to be able to twist and turn like, uh, you know, the ministry of truth in 1984. And there's no relevance or relationship to past or present or future or consistency. It's just the whim of the moment. And anytime you resist that or oppose it or question it, um, you know, the, the, the hellfires of damnation are rained down upon your head through various forms of abuse. And, uh, it is a, uh, a self and the thing is of course you need a self to be able to get out of it and that's the first thing to go so it is a very very challenging situation for a lot of people and uh, you know you can face this in your personal life your working life your uh, political life I think it's uh, pretty 
yeah. pretty common these days. Yeah, I know. Well, and see, the hard part, I mean, the part, you know, the thing is, I think I'm only kind of pushing this theory as, I mean, it's not, it's only helpful in so much that you, it defines the landscape. Um, it just, it could certainly, I just want to bring it up mostly because pathological altruism doesn't fit and it suggests that you could cure it. <laughs> I mean, that you might be able to talk somebody out of, you know, giving away the store. Um, my personal experience with narcissism is that it doesn't, there's no talking through it. And it's also a much more, it's a much more negative thing. I mean, the narcissist, I mean, you know, it's, it's weird, but pathological altruism is like, yeah, I'm just so nice that, you know, man, <laughs> you know, look at that. Where if you say, I just, I just don't like to hurt people's feelings. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, where if you look at that same behavior pattern, I mean, it's sort of like a, you know, because a lot of these, you know, the, like the pathological altruism comes from, you know, websites that are very, you know, talk about, you know, maybe what your previous caller was talking about with the white nationalism and that tend to, you know, really try to focus on, you know, what it means to be Caucasian, I guess. Right. And it's sort of, you know, it's kind of, it's, it's kind of funny to me because it's almost like a, a backhanded compliment. You know, we white people are just so nice, <laughs> you know, well, it, you know, it's, it's hard because you know, it also this ties into your 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 callers. Previously, we we're all kind of t tying into this for me, but you know, we kind of need the truth if we're going to try to tackle going forward. And, and I don't think it's I don't think we're in the situation because white people inherently are just so nice that they you know they go crazy with it. It's oh yeah, I mean the the you know yeah do too that the alt right is somehow white superiority or white supremacy. Yeah. I mean, nobody criticizes white people like the alt-right. <laughs> nobody criticizes, like, they've been so frustrated with white people. It's like, what the hell's wrong with you people? You're white people. You're just giving away everything and self-destroying your own culture. And like, what the hell's the matter? Like, they're harsher on white people than, than any any other group that I've ever heard of. Yeah, it's still like this backdoor, like, white supremacy thing. I mean, like, it's sort of like how you get, you know, the, the you know, the whites are, you know, we're going to blame the whites for everything is actually an inverted white supremacy theory. Like you can't, you know, in order to have the ability to destroy everything, you have to be superior to it. Right. You know, so. Well, no, you can blow up a house without knowing how to build it. And I think that's what they're viewing as the sort of self-destruction of well, Western culture. That's sort of going, like, you know, they're always talking about race, you know, like slavery and, you know, or, you know, we're holding you out of the school system and, you know, all that kind of, it, it's like the things they actually talk about, I mean, is about access to like, you know, white wealth and, and these institutions and things like that. And it's there. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't know again, much, much about it, but my understanding is that a, they're tired of being called racist all the time oh, and yeah, taking yeah. the blame for something which may just be human biodiversity. And number two, look at Detroit in 1950, look at Detroit in 2016. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. And uh, those are things where, yeah. you know, there are legitimate questions to be raised. I don't know what the answer to them all is going to be, but they certainly do need to be raised. All right. Yeah. Amy, is there something you wanted to, I'm going to give you, because I went on with long stories, <laughs> I'm going to absolutely give you the last word of our entire conversation. And we, we talked before, right? Yeah, we did. We did. Yeah, yeah. I, I remember it. Okay. So, yeah, feel free to... Uh, to, to close it off with whatever you, you've got. You've got the platform and I'll, I'll duct tape my head. <laughs> Why well, I wanted to bring it up, like I said, I, I think the hard part is people have been listening for the last 50 years on, on everybody 
dumping on the white race. Although, like I said, it's, it's sort of like this weird inverted supremacy theory, at least to me. But 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 it's negative. It's all negative. And you know that to to look at at why whites, you know, or at least Western nations that are white majority seem to be suicidal all of a sudden and to come up with like maybe a negative reason, which is like narcissistic tendencies, I think would tend to be really uncomfortable. I mean, it's like adding, it's adding to the dog pile, right? I mean, it's, it's terrible and negative, um, which is why I think there's a tendency to push that away for the, the little bit more comfortable, a little bit more ironically positive pathological altruism. But I also feel strongly that you're not, you can't, unless you can at least vaguely know where you are, you're not going to solve the problem, right? You know, and, and if I say narcissism, then, you know, we're going to get a sense of, as ironically, you know, the, the alt-right has instinctively figured out how to deal with a narcissist, right? Rather than a pathological altruist, which is all of that, that triggering that they're doing. Right, they're just put, you know they keep pushing and pushing and pushing because they don't. Have well, they're just they're aiming to strengthen people by exposure to negative stimuli. Yes, yes. Like so, how how do you get over a fear of something? Well, as far as I understand it, you gradually expose yourself to more and more of it. Like you're afraid of spiders or whatever. Well, yeah. is there one here? Am I in Australia? Good. Um, but so you gradual exposure. So I think that I don't know what the, the theory is, but my guess is that the trolls on the alt right are aiming to toughen people up by saying, okay, so. We're trolling you, and you're still alive. So maybe now we can go around saving the world. Yeah, well, it's but it's also um, uh, the anonymous conservative somewhere on that blog. But the idea is, if you can't get a, like you can't get a narcissist on your side, I mean, just ever, it just unless they decide to heal themselves or whatever it is they decide to do spiritually, you're not going to get them on your side because there's no rational way to to do it, and they're just such geniuses at manipulating situations that. You know, it's crazy. But what you can do is get them to be quiet, right? You can, like, so overstimulate them that you get them to shut down. And Or you make it humiliating for them to be in a public sphere. And yes. humiliation is the one thing that um, I think narcissists or vain people can't stand. Yes, exactly. So, like I said, the alt-right – but, you know, I, it's, I, I think it's more, you know, if you know if people kind of latch on to the, that idea that that's what they're, they're kind of fighting rather than altruism – even though it's more negative, that it mm. might be helpful, you know, kind of going forward, you know, that's not the only framework. You've, you've, you've presented a, a lot of other great frameworks to think about it in. But if you're going to think about like a psychological bucket, you know. Yeah, no, and I, I was just thinking about the last caller who was, we were talking about how some women or maybe more women than men have a difficult time saying to people that they suck at something or they're bad at something or say spare their feelings and so on. You know, one thing that has had people say, what's a mystery in the West? Well, the mystery in the West is not that much, not that complicated to solve. It's just massive amounts of single moms raising kids. And without the masculine presence, uh, without the stability, without the honesty, without the bluntness, without the reality processing, without all of that stuff, um, you know, we have a gynocentric, female-centric, female-defined male population out there because you've got a lot of single moms. Well, you don't have single moms. Uh, you, of course, have women who are kind of in charge of the family because of the family court system and people, men so terrified of getting divorced that they're just appease. And then you have, of course, women all over the, um, up until at least uh, junior high or high school, it's almost all 
women teachers uh, in charge of everything. So you've got this generation, what is that the old line from a great movie, Fight Club? Uh, we're a generation of men raised by women. I'm not sure another woman is exactly what we need. Yeah, and know. this generation of men raised by women, uh, it's not that complicated to figure out why there's this uh, perhaps narcissism or perhaps pathological uh, altruism and so on. Um, it's a delightful aspect of female nature that may have gotten just a little bit too it's much play in the public it, square it, these days. Yeah, it's gotten out of hand. I, I mean, I, I was I was hearing the last caller, and um, I guess I'm a, <laughs> a little bit more masculine woman. I guess for I, I know where she was coming from that instinct, but I, you know, I was kind of nodding my head and agreeing with you. I mean, there's really there are moments when maybe you can get away with what I would call sins of omission, you know, grandma is going to like everything that comes from her grandchildren. <laughs> There's a really good reason for it. Right. Um, so, but you know, a good grandma might in a different moment, pull that child aside and say, you know, look, you know, this wasn't maybe the best or, you know what I mean? Like it's, no, no, no. well, you no, suck. I mean, seriously, I mean, like, because you can't, I mean, this is more has to do with child rearing. But, I, you know, I can't – if I end up in a situation where my children – it looks like my children are, are – there's a favorite child, that's a problem. But, you know, that's a, that's a very serious problem. Well, but, you know, it's like uh, a, friend, a friend of mine's kid years ago drew some fairly average picture and said, I'm going to sell this for $20. And I'm like, no, you're not. Well, so you know that I will actually say <laughs> – you know, also not going to happen. Job, but, you know, I've actually had moments where – you know, like my daughter's yeah. to me, and I, I, I like have the actually picture. said, it's, no, you're not selling yeah. that for, you know, yeah. it's a great job to me, <laughs> you know, but. I'm thrilled that you can do it, but. Uh, yes, but. You know, a, a, a horse that can count to five is an extraordinary horse, but not an extraordinary mathematician. So, <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, no, I mean, and so that, that bluntness and that, um, you know, the, the reality check that, that men bring. Yeah, it's a general rule of thumb, and it's and it's yeah, it's important. That's missing. I mean, I mean I, that I do see is sort of just this common thread out, outside of mainstream conservative, which is just it seems like they're just off the rails with the feminism and stuff. But you know, we need we need more men out there. We need yeah. more men. and we'll we'll get them when the government runs out of money. Yeah, when the government runs out of money, yeah, and women have to get back to being in the business of relating to men again and pleasing men, just as men have been in the business of pleasing women for the past hundred and fifty thousand years. <laughs> uh, when the government runs out of money, all of this stuff will align itself back, and all these ideologies that are so carefully constructed will all fall apart, and we'll all get back to the basic basic lizard brain uh, associations, and society will work out. Uh, hopefully, it happens in time. Yeah, <laughs> we'll see. Well, see, yeah, but, I uh, don't see us getting through this without some bumps, though. I mean, I just there's going to be some bumps. There's, yeah, there's you know, going to be some bumps. No way. And I and I, I see people who are like, well, you know, what we want is the extreme. We like, you know, let's let's get Hillary Clinton in on there because you know she's going to add gasoline, <laughs> you know, make it go faster. And I'm like, I'm not really sure that when you've got a burning building, the best idea is to throw gasoline on it, right? You know. <laughs> You know, I. Yeah, you know, well, she would make really. other decisions. Yeah, she would make other demographic decisions that might make things even more exciting. But yeah. all right, Amy, I'm uh, going to close it off. I, I really, really appreciate the call. It was uh, a great pleasure to chat. Please, please call back. You're welcome anytime. Oh, and certainly we got great feedback from our last conversation. Uh, thanks, everyone, so much for listening and for watching. Uh, please check out the uh, videos we put out recently on the New Jersey 
and New York uh, terrorist attacks this last weekend. It was a lot of work, uh, and uh, I think they're very good, and I think they're very helpful and explanatory, as is the one that we put out on what's going on in Syria uh, at the moment. Uh, sorry that has been a lot of current events, not so much abstract philosophy, but that's where we are at the moment in the world. Thank you, everyone, so much for watching and for listening. Please, please come to freedomainradio.com slash donate to help out the show. You can follow me, of course, on Twitter. Please like, subscribe, and share every video that you get a hold of from us and use our affiliate link at fdrurl.com slash Amazon. Thanks, everyone, so much. Bye-bye. <laughs>